Listening to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that delivers a loving autopsy on the horror films of the past and present. Right now, we are very deep, in fact, nearing the climax of the Halloween film franchise. Every night is Halloween around here right now, and tonight we are rebooting the whole thing 2007 style. And dealing with the Rob Zombie Halloween. And I'm eager to talk about it. I hope my co-hosts are as well. Uh, first, uh, Vikram Week. How the hell are you tonight, my friend? John, I am uh, I am filled with the joy of life. My, uh, <laughs> As Mike would say, my cup overfloweth. Uh, yes, that's a classic. I, I steal that one myself from time to time. And Rich Eckersley, how are you? I'm doing great. It's a Tuesday night when we're recording it, and when am I in a better mood? <laughs> it's great to have you back after um, a pretty impressive debut, I must say, on Resurrection last time. Glad you could join us again. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be back. And Vic, uh, you and I have been uh, hashing this stuff out for uh, quite a while now, so uh, always good to talk to you, my friend. Well, it's, I mean, this this feels like such a good way to start to wind up this whole journey that we've been on with this franchise because it really was watching this. You really are watching scenes that that you know so well and characters that you know so well play out again. It's just one of the things I was struck by watching this was how much I was like, oh, he changed the wording in that line or this mm-hmm. scene is missing. I'm always impressed by the amount of detail that we get into in this. And it pays dividends when you get into something like this, where you really are able to juxtapose this remake from the original and see what things might be better and and uh, what things Zombie might have screwed up. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not like we're the original artists here, but we have studied that song that has been covered so many times that we know if a note has changed. And at, at that, at this point, it's so different from the first time I saw this film as kind of a casual fan of the Halloween films in, in 2007, that I had a completely different experience. And, and, and you're right, Vic, it's, it's really fascinating to, uh, you know, especially when it's a filmmaker who began as a musical artist, you know, and he's almost literally doing a cover here. It's, it, it's kind of wild. So uh, before we really get into it, um, it's kind of traditional on this podcast to have a, a beverage of some kind, a fresca, perhaps a, a Schweppes, but uh, maybe an alcoholic drink. I don't know. <laughs> what are you drinking, Vic? <laughs> uh, I'm drinking a uh, Lagunitas uh, Super Cluster Ale. Nice. Uh, I don't know that uh, one. Quite, quite good. I think it's a little new. Very hoppy, but kind of a pale ale, and uh, as as per my usual taste, uh, uh, about eight percent high alcohol. So uh, I think you'll notice its effects as the podcast goes on. <laughs> uh, I always notice the effects, but I edit these shows, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, we're a few beers in now. 
Uh, so, Rich, are, are, <laughs> Rich, are you partaking in any beverages tonight? Uh, yeah, actually, on Vic's recommendation, I am going with a Trader Joe's uh, Hellerbach. Um, oh, look at that. Which is like a, sort of a golden, sort of a, a, gold, a cross between like a golden, uh, I think it's a German ale, and a Bach. So it's a stronger golden ale. Uh, it's mm-hmm. quite good. I don't usually go for, for the Trader Joe's beers, but this one works for me. All right. We are not messing around with the ABV tonight, huh, fellas? I actually am drinking a Stella, which is not uh, 6 or 8% or something in that, in that range. This movie had some pretty rough scenes to get through, so maybe it will help. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we definitely need some anesthesia for, for this one. But I'm actually drinking it out of a Stella glass that uh, our mutual friend Amy uh, stole from a bar for me at some point. So traditionally, we discuss our first time watching the film. I will lead that off and say that I don't believe I saw this in the theater. My memory's a bit hazy, but I do remember like being extremely disturbed by Michael's first kill in this film. And that really uh, had an impact on me kind of made the rest of the movie work. I was very much a fan of Rob Zombie, I would say, in the sense that while I didn't like House of a Thousand Corpses all that much, I did see that in the theater. I remember it very vividly because I just went on a Saturday and there was no one else in the theater for this matinee. And I kind of walked out, eh. But then I saw Devil's Rejects and that kind of blew me away. Maybe we'll touch on that film uh, inevitably throughout this conversation. I, I went into this not having seen several, as anyone who's listened to our show knows, I, I not having seen several of the Halloween movies and just kind of having a casual appreciation. I'm always a more of a Jason guy than a, a Michael guy. And it didn't have to do much to stand out as being gritty and disturbing and more realistic and grounded than I thought a Halloween movie would be. And it it achieved all those things, so I was pretty pleased with it. However, I do remember not being that jazzed about the final hour, I guess, which is when it goes into a straight remake. I was very much more intrigued by the prequel part of the film, and I do remember that uh, vividly. Rich, once again, it works out uh, extremely well to have you on the podcast because my first time watching this movie was with your wife, uh when you she... son of a bitch <laughs> <laughs> sorry for you to hear about this uh now but uh <laughs> no, so i used to live uh in a studio apartment in studio city but i could walk to universal city walk except that there's this enormous hill to get up there yeah uh and you could in theory take the tram but i was always so high that the idea of getting on the tram seemed terrifying and i would rather just walk it and so it was one of those nights when you know i don't know she hey do you want to hang out yeah sure all right what do you want to do hey could i talk you into seeing halloween and i feel like this was a time when when she wasn't that into horror um and she basically said yes but you have to run up that hill with me. <laughs> wow. So, Vic, you were, how many packs of cigarettes were you smoking a day at that point? <laughs> a little over one. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was, it was probably a struggle. I'm also reasonably sure that I got high in advance as well. Although that was 
surely wasted by the time I got to the top of the hill uh, <laughs> when whatever buzz I had evaporated uh, and I was drenched in sweat and uh, uh, desperately just trying to keep up with Wendy. And then we walked up to the movie theater and saw it. I sort of remember my impression being that I was pretty impressed. It was sort of better than I than I thought it was going to be. I hadn't seen House of a Thousand Corpses. Uh, I don't think I'd seen Devil's Rejects. Um, so I kind of didn't know what to expect. I was a fan of White Zombie and some of the zombie solo stuff. Uh, so I knew of him. And I remember thinking he was sort of an interesting choice for this. But no, I liked it. Uh, I definitely came away going, wow, all right, that was, again, not not perfect. And I have, John, I, I, I sort of echo your sentiment that the the entirety of the first movie is compressed into an hour-long version in uh, sort of the second half of this movie. And you just realize how much the, the breathing room and those long shots and things added to the, the first one. But he brings something else to the table that's different. And, you know, we've, we've done the Friday the 13th remake. I've seen, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and the Amityville Horror and right on down the list of kind of the high profile, The Fog. Jesus, what a fucking abortion that was. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, kids. I know the door's open. So it was it, it was something to see. OK, we gave someone who's a real artist with a real perspective and a real point of view, the chance to remake something and really kind of make it their own. And that pays dividends. I think it's, it is not without its flaws. And I think in general, zombie sort of aesthetic is not, you know, he's not Stanley Kubrick, but he does bring something original to it or something that's very distinctly him. That makes this a really interesting watch. And I actually, the second viewing, I won't even say second, I'm sure I've watched it uh, more than once since then. But this most recent viewing really did pay off a little bit. I really felt like I was getting some stuff out of it. So I'm excited to talk about it. Outstanding. And Rich, had you seen it before Hollow Weekend or uh, any, you know, other viewing with uh, with Vic? Uh, you know, I had seen it before. Oddly enough, the only memory I can attach to seeing it is the same story that Vic told where I had to work one night and I had to work late. And Wendy said, okay, well, I'm going to go see Halloween with Vic. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not a great feeling on like a, on a Friday night. No. Um, I'm sorry about that, Rich. And I, I was definitely, I definitely was a fan of Halloween. I don't know how much I'd say like I was a big fan of the franchise, but I was certainly familiar with it. And I, you know, I, I'd watched those films growing up and rewatched a few of them, especially around that time. I, I think that I remember AMC used to just do marathons of Halloween films right before Halloween, and so I would, you know, frequently put that on the break room at work or watch it at home and would just try to catch up on them. So definitely a fan of the franchise. My feelings about Rob Zombie were and kind of still are that in the 90s, like the guy seemed like sort of a poser hipster douchebag with this like shtick that he was doing. And while I liked some of his music, I definitely did not care for him as a personality that much. In a sense, I'd say that time has sort of proven me wrong. He does seem pretty committed to his aesthetic. Um, and the fact that he's still making these like uh, what are essentially B movies at this point 
um, that seem to to have the same aesthetic, like is actually shows some commitment to the craft, I guess. So I have to give him respect for that. Not that he needs it. Anyways, so long story short, at some point I did watch it. I had the same reaction. I remember being really grabbed by the the prequel elements of it and the the back origin story. And that really stuck in my mind. And other than Danielle Harris being in it, I really could not remember anything that happened in the rest of the movie. And that goes up to this screening. Like I remembered pretty well like what happened in the backstory. And then I really couldn't remember what happened after that or what the remake itself was like. And I don't think that's gonna change a whole lot from this this viewing we just did. I have a I have a confession to make, which is that I watched the last 15 minutes of this uh, as per usual in my car on my way home. <laughs> so I, I, Shocker. I only, have, I only have the one viewing to draw on. I was a little I, 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 I wish that I had rewatched it again uh, coming into tonight. But the problem is that the last 15 minutes of this movie are extraordinarily dark. Uh-huh. Uh, and so in order to prevent myself from crashing uh, into passersby. I what I my my basic knowledge of what happens in the last ten minutes of this is like, <laughs> and like that's all I could hear was like Michael Myers crashing through things and like her crashing through things and then screaming and then her being dragged away and then more crashing and at some point they fell off the roof. Like that was, <laughs> that was pretty much the impression that I got of it. Uh, yeah, I remember, I, I think you got it. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, <laughs> that's kind of my impression. And I was watching it <laughs> without having to worry about, you know, going through a guardrail or taking out any school buses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, um, again, I, you guys know, I take this pretty seriously and I did listen to a podcast and, and watched all the special features and, you know, some of the director's commentary and blah, blah, blah. I did my homework on this, but, uh, as opposed to Halloween resurrection of all films, I only saw this once for our podcast and I split it in two viewings. Like my wife came home the first time and I stopped and then I watched the last, I don't know, 25 minutes, half an hour, uh, on another night, and I was distinctly bored by the part that you're describing, uh, Vic, the last 20 minutes or so of this movie. Like, you compress the whole movie, the, the original film, into an hour, and you spend 20 minutes of it on this very pedestrian stock and chase kind of stuff in the Myers house between uh, Lori and Michael that I just... it it didn't grab me that much. I, I think that the ending of this movie, I mean, we can get into, there's an alternate ending that changes sort of the complexion of it and happens a lot sooner. There's some notable things to talk about, but it, it's kind of monotonous. So it's, it's sort of funny that, that that's your impression. Cause uh, that's kind of what watching it is like. So if I, if I can, <clears throat> I just want to jump off of your, uh, your viewing experience to say that I had a sort of opposite experience when watching it. And yes, this is kind of a brag that I was by myself on Sunday. I was watching our, our infant son. And once he went to bed around 8 o'clock, I was like, okay, I need to watch Halloween. So I went and rented it on our Amazon account and immediately got a text from my wife that said, like in all caps, you're watching Halloween without me? <laughs> then, 
then I had to make a promise that not only that after I watched it on Sunday night, that on Monday night when I came home after work, I would rewatch it with her again. Wow. So I watched it two nights in a row, once just for, for her benefit. Did you have to run up a hill at all in any of this? <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, there, yeah, there's a strenuous exercise portion of the, of the my wife had less than zero interest in watching this, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's cool. All right. Well, yeah, Rich, you are, you are going to be most uh, immediately familiar with uh, the movie that we're talking about tonight. So without further ado, why don't we kind of start homing in on the, on the nitty gritty details here. However, I do like to kind of begin, you know, with how the movie came about and where it sort of uh, fits in the whole timeline. Now, that's easy because we're rebooting, and in 2007, uh, they're restarting the whole timeline, and Rob Zombie was told by John Carpenter when he said that he was going to do this gig, just make it your own, and uh, I think as Vic touched on, he certainly did that. And, you know, like, just a, a side note about Rob Zombie as a filmmaker... I don't think this guy ultimately is a poser at all. Like he is, he is who he is and he might be limited compared to a lot of filmmakers and certainly screenwriters, but he's got a very distinct voice and he's very committed and he's got a real work ethic and a, a passion and an intensity for these movies. And I think that when you look at the overall oeuvre of Rob Zombie's films, like there's, there's a lot of through lines through them. And, you know, some of them turn people off. I think as a side note, one of the funny uh, recurring things about this movie, and I, I, I'm reminded of our old co-host Mike Kuchek here, where he talked about the scene early in this film where Sherry Moon Zombie is arguing with William Forsythe. Uh, they're playing these sort of white trash characters and just spitting profanities at each other. Uh, to be fair, William Forsythe's character, Ronnie, is uh, by far the, the more odious of them. But it, it feels like a stock, like if you were going to distill Rob Zombie down to a 15-second sequence, it would be them having this, you know, <laughs> ugly fight in the kitchen of their sort of, it's not a trailer, but, you know, they're kind of run down house. And I think a lot of people just get obsessed with, with that as defining Rob Zombie in this very negative way and defining this film in a very negative way. But in reality, it's not like the entire movie or all of his movies have this sort of, you know, vile, gutter, you know, histrionic, fake uh, loquaciousness that, that this film, the scene could be characterized as, but that's kind of what so many people come back to and like, Oh, that's Rob Zombie. And it, it, I don't think that's entirely fair. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? On the one hand, I agree. Now I haven't seen a, a ton of zombies movies. I, I really like the devil's rejects. I think that's a, that's actually kind of a, weirdly exceptional film and maybe kind of the best distillation of what his auteurist sort of voice is. I'm really curious about what, how three from hell is going to play, but that I think the reason that that scene feels that way is because it's so ugly 
Like it's so it it really resonates in this sort of deeply emotional way that people would talk to each other that way around their kids and the baby. And like it's the fact that people attach that scene or that, you know, I mean, that kind of vibe to him, I think is more a testament to the emotional reaction that it gets out of people. Because, yes, there's another 90 minutes of the movie and there's lots of. Uh, you know, relatively lovely, uh, nice people in it. But that scene just feels really just effective. And yeah, like that's zombies, his his specialty, the things that, that he seems to do really well that really speak to him, by and large, really do involve, I, I try not to be derogative because you don't want to say redneck, sure. right? But like, you know, lower income people, with you know just being awful to each other uh, or being awful to other people, and I'm it's sorry. I mean, are we just... not going to be allowed to say redneck on this show? Because... <laughs> we, got, we got we got in, we got in some trouble on Friday the Thirteenth, Rich. So I've tried, right. be, uh, I've tried to be I've tried to be diplomatic. No. Yeah, it's a good scene. I mean, that's a really powerful scene to open the movie with. It paints a picture in five minutes that you know what Michael Myers' whole childhood has been like. This was authentic to Rob Zombie's childhood or growing up. Say what you want. Like, it does not seem like an act or inauthentic or, you know, devoid of mooring to things that, conversations and bad scenes that happen in this country um, and have over the years or, you know, really any culture it it's does that stuff seem to you like a part of his signature in a, in a sort of a roll your eyes way, or do you sort of appreciate where he's coming from with this kind of thing? I don't know. I guess I sort of had a opposite re- and I don't know if you're, if you're coming directly on like what he said about it or your feelings on it. I wouldn't say that authenticity was what came to mind when I saw it. I almost had the opposite reaction where I felt like this scene, which kind of sets the template for most of the scenes, at least that take place in the backstory, um, where the characters felt, it felt like every single person who showed up on screen was, was just an asshole to a cartoonish level, where it was like there are no good people in this world and not only like and when I say no good, they are no good on like any level. And obviously you get exceptions like Loomis and and his and uh, Michael Myers mom, uh, Judith. Um, to, to, Ju- an ex- Judith. to an extent. I mean, I think. Uh, no, Judith is the sister. I think, yeah, right? it's uh, Deborah. Yeah, yeah. Deborah is Deborah. the mom. Deborah. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. They're deeply flawed, I would say. I mean, they're not without their redeeming qualities, but both Loomis and uh, the mother, I think, are questionable. <laughs> Yeah, but I will say, and maybe this is getting away from your question, but the thing that really struck me about this scene and continued to strike me throughout the entire movie is that I can't speak a, a whole lot to zombie style because I also have not seen a whole lot of his movies. Um, I kind of checked out after Halloween too, and I think I was justified in that uh, reaction. <laughs> but um, I maybe, did. See- maybe we'll find out in three months, Rich, when we record <laughs> the next one. <laughs> Uh, I actually did like House of a Thousand Corpses. I'm one of the only people I, I know that, that feel that way. I didn't love it, um, but it did have that Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like Southern Fried 
pulpy, you know, kind of grindhouse horror. It had some good imagery. It had some nice shots. I was I was impressed for it to be like his debut film. It was more than I was expecting. Um, but the thing that really struck me about this movie was that from this first scene, and I do attribute this to Zombie, while I feel like there are a lot of shortcomings in his script and some of the characters, he is getting performances out of these actors and out of every single actor in the film that are just like, er like everyone is giving 100% in this movie. Like no one is phoning it in. And a couple of, uh, like one of uh, Laurie's friends later on, I feel is, is a little weak, but it's just like the like the foot is on the gas from the from the very beginning in terms of like performances, and I don't feel like it ever really stops. Like everyone feels very indelible, and is sort of wearing if they are you know no good assholes, then they're really wearing that on their sleeve. Well, he does cast uh, experienced actors for the most part, and, and people who are happy to be there and happy to have this opportunity. And I think the intensity of his films uh, is undeniable. You know, he does not, people phoning it in would not be acceptable uh, on a Rob Zombie set. And I think that that, that does create uh, an energy in these scenes. And yeah, I am not, you know, going to sit here and as we talk about this, say that I don't appreciate his place in the whole you know, ecosystem of horror over the last 20 to 30 years. Um, I think he's, he's definitely carved out a niche for himself, but I am going to spend a lot of this podcast saying how disappointed I am about aspects of this movie. So, <laughs> but um, back to kind of the bigger picture, it, I found it really interesting just looking at the Wikipedia that in adjusted dollars, uh, because, you know, all of these films span decades this is one of the more financially successful movies in the entire franchise. It adjusts to 77.4 million domestically. And that's behind the first one, which was 183 million. And then the new one, uh, the 2018 film at 155, uh, H2O was 107. And then Halloween two was 84, but this is nipping at the heels of those films and it like set records, which apparently according to Wikipedia still have not been broken for Labor Day weekend uh, in terms of a four day weekend gross. So like this was not a failure by any means, uh, which is kind of strange just kind of considering its view amongst uh, I guess culturally and, and with critics and fans for the most part. I mean, I think there are, are a lot more defenders of this movie than Halloween Resurrection, for example. But, uh, you know, it's it's just interesting to think about that this legitimately rebooted the series. And then we got one more movie, which honestly now I'm, I'm even more interested in uh, talking to you guys about and revisiting because uh, in sort of reading up on this movie, a lot of people say that they prefer zombie sequel to this movie and we'll get into what i thought about it when i saw it when we get there but it's just interesting that 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 he he really did kind of uh begin potentially a new trilogy and whether that worked out or not uh we'll we'll see obviously there's no third film but um this movie did quite well and by the way the budget was significantly higher than the david gordon green film 
which is just kind of mind blowing 10 years later. Was but this it... the first one that had been released by Dimension? Uh, no. no, no, Dimension, Dimension did H2O and uh, Resurrection. I believe they mm-hmm. did Halloween 6 as well. Uh, right. Yeah, I think the Weinsteins yeah. got their hands on this pretty early or in the, in the middle. In fact, no, I think it very early. I believe even maybe the fourth one uh, was the Weinsteins. So the, the Danielle Harris uh, debut, interestingly. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to stay big picture at all here for a bit longer, I would say that it's very interesting first to look at, you know, who they cast. And we've we've touched on that a bit, but we haven't mentioned that Daniel Harris is back in this franchise playing the Annie role from the original film. And I do find it kind of humorous that she was 30 at this point. And the character uh, of Lori uh, is played by a girl who wasn't born when Danielle Harris made her Halloween debut. That's a testament to good genetics right there. Yeah, uh, she does not look 30 in this movie. Uh-uh, and, no. and I have to say, it's I, I felt deeply conflicted about my feelings uh, toward Danielle Harris when I was watching this. Because <laughs> ha- having gone through the franchise and seen her as like a... 11 year old or whatever she was in four and five she is she is no longer that age (laughs) which which i i I gotta say do you think part of that is is zombie messing with us Mm -hmm. like do you think he's he's intentionally trying to make you feel that way yes i actually i mean that's just based on kind of everything we've talked about about rob zombie and his approach to this Yes, I think he was like, I want Danielle Harris in this, and I want her topless for, like, a significant portion of the film. <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not kidding either. It's, it's like about yeah. uh, four or five minutes of screen time. Of course, she's, you know, mostly stabbed and, and not, not doing so good for the bulk of it. But, um, yeah, it, it's weird because we discussed in the Curse of Michael Myers podcast – why was Daniel Harris not playing Jamie Lloyd in that? And it kind of came down as best as we could uh, ascertain to kind of her being lowballed in terms of salary by uh, the Weinsteins and by Dimension and you know the producers and and so on. So they cast somebody else, and this this kind of felt like maybe whether it's karma or just or Rob Zombie trying to right a wrong or even the the Weinsteins feeling guilty about it. They. It's odd to bring her back and have her play a different character. I mean, it's, somebody uh, had to sell that, I think, and somebody had to be on board with that because it's, it is weird. But she's fantastic. And playing her father is Brad Dourif, who um, many of us are fond of, I think. And he doesn't do much in this film. I have to say, most of these kind of name horror actors from other things, they... They're, they're somewhat wasted in this film, I would say. Did you guys feel that? I, I, I understand that he has a bigger part in Halloween too, which I think I'm looking forward to. But uh, what did you think generally of sort of the, I won't call it stunt casting, but kind of the Tarantino-esque recycling of uh, names from the past in this film? I thought it made a big difference. It was one of the notes that I had was, Having, I mean, you know, Sid Haig, I, I think, is certainly sort of wasted. I thought Brad Dourif really brings something to it. Uh, I mean, he, for the first time, again, because we're getting to revisit this, we have to get an explanation of how 
Lori Strode wound up in the same neighborhood as her original family that was murdered by her brother and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, and and he has to sell that. Now, that's not the best written scene. That's a tough. <laughs> but that's always been the problem with Halloween is that the whole idea that Laurie Strode is Michael's sister is a really tough sell, which is why the David Gordon Green uh, take on it was such a good idea. But given that you're having to sell that kind of that kind of tough material, that kind of tough backstory, you know, you need a real actor who does it. And that's something that we that we come back to, I think, over and over again in this series, even more than certainly Friday the 13th or a lot of the others, is that having good actors matters. And when you're selling this kind of stuff, when you're setting up the drama, uh, I thought Brad Dourif was terrific. I thought Malcolm McDowell was a little over the top. I mean, you just can't you just can't top Donald Pleasance. But uh, Malcolm McDowell is in an effortlessly uh, sort of commanding presence on screen. And I thought there were a couple of scenes that he did some really interesting scenes with Danielle Harris, William Forsythe, uh, Udo Kier pops up and you're like, Oh, cool. All those things matter like that in the, in the totality of the movie and how much I enjoy it. I'm looking at, let me ask you guys this. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. And I said, D Wallace was in this. Yeah. But I can't oh God, place it's, it's it. She was Lori's mom and she was fantastic. The adopted mom. Yeah. What? Yeah, oh, sorry, Christ. I thought, that, I thought that was Kathy Baker. Jeez Louise. No, she was terrific. <laughs> Boy, I'm really, I'm really upset at myself for thinking that was, uh, that was Kathy Baker now, but, um, that's forgivable. I will, I will say too, just on one other casting note, um, when I was watching this, it gets to the scene when, when young Michael is sort of in, in school and the bully is picking on him, uh, and saying some, some, really unfortunate things about his mom and his sister. And I was kind of looking at that kid and going, Jesus, that looks, who is that guy? And like, fortunately I'm watching it on Amazon where you can kind of, you, you know, the, the cast information will pop up on the side. If you click on it, my kids just started watching the spy kids movies. <laughs> there and you it's go. The kid, it's the kid from spy kids is the bully who talks about getting Sherry Moon zombie, getting a, a, the cum pumped out of her stomach and then gets beaten to death. Uh, and I was like, Oh my God. Like I literally less than a week ago was watching spy kids with my five-year-old. And then I was watching that. So uh, that was a little jarring. I would like to see Rob zombie remake spy kids. I think that's uh it's in development. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Rich doubling back to you. Any, any thoughts overall about sort of the, the cast and the uh, stars of, of yesteryear? Did you find it distracting or a plus uh, or somewhere in between? I'm, I mean, it was definitely a plus. Like I said earlier, I, I disagree that people were wasted. I, I guess a few of these roles were fairly, small but some of them like the the small role is what worked for me i mean i probably would watch an entire film about ken foray's portrayal of big joe grizzly <laughs> yeah i mean it, but, he, but, but he just like chews scenery for like, all of like two minutes and yet i have a vivid recollection of, of that scene mm-hmm. i thought he was fantastic in it i thought d wallace was uh was fantastic and we could talk more about her performance later, but just she, the the way that she read the mom character, you never quite knew where she was coming from. Like it was from a very pointed place, but you could never tell whether she was actually like upset or just having, you know, these sarcastic moments with her daughter. 
I personally liked Malcolm McDowell uh, as Sam Loomis. I mean, it, it's not exactly a part that you can re- replace, but it was a totally new take on it. I feel like Loomis is a completely different character in this movie um, to where the movie's almost half about him in a sense um, and about his role in Michael's life and, and you know, what it, what it yielded. And I thought he played it well. I actually, I liked Scout Taylor Compton. Like she was, she was not Jamie Lee Curtis, but she was, uh, she was serviceable. Oh yeah. And then Clint Howard. I did, I did not need any more Clint Howard, but I got just enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I feel like that the, some of the small roles like were small for a reason and, and it worked for me. I was always entertained to see these people pop up. Can I actually, I want to interject cause I almost forgot about this. So I had in a, in a, in a previous life, I, was writing for a website doing movie reviews and sort of box office stuff. And I got the chance to work the red carpet of the spike TV screen 2007 awards on camera, which is not my specialty. And I, I'm not going to give away any, uh, hopefully enough information for anyone to Google this. Cause I don't even know if it exists on the internet, but I hope it doesn't. I'll be looking uh, for it, Vic. That's for sure. I don't think I was a compelling screen presence. I believe I heard editors laughing at me. But <laughs> one of the things that I did on that was interview Danny Trejo as, you know, so he sort of made his way down there. And I got to ask him a few questions. And I asked him how he felt his death scene in this, because he was really there promoting this new Halloween. I asked him how his death scene in this, com- you know, compared to his death scene in Heat. Uh, and he seemed genuinely offended uh, <laughs> that I <laughs> he said that that his scene in heat was considered one of the great death scenes of all time. Uh, and here he just had a TV dropped on his head and like, how dare I uh, compare those two? And that is I tell you, when Danny Trejo is two and a half feet from you and and seems genuinely offended, it's it's impressive, and I I sort of recoiled and was like, "Sorry, man, no, good, go, hey, great, love the movie, <laughs> see you Goodness, I could see him just affixing you with a smoldering stare in that moment that uh, that would yeah. stick with the man for sure. By the way, I am ninety percent sure that I saw him like a week ago at an Italian restaurant, you know, because I just like he has a distinctive look. Um, you kind of recognize him instantly. And I thought of you guys and I thought of this podcast when I saw it, I'm like, wow, that's uh that's an interesting confluence of events, but uh, he's not I, a large man. I wish no. we'd had this conversation before so that you could have walked up to his table and say, I'm so sorry to bother your dinner, but I just <laughs> wanted to ask, how do you think your death? Scene <laughs> stacked up against your death scene in heat. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, maybe if he's a regular at this Italian restaurant, uh, that could happen in the future. Because I, I would love to follow up. The correct question is, would you like to come on a podcast and explain <laughs> how your death scene in Halloween compares to your death scene in, uh, in Heat? Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's time to get a little bit more specific in our analysis. And with that, I am going to open my second beer. I'm gonna I'm gonna join the cascade of beer openings here and Ooh, there we go. Nice one, nice yeah. one. Well executed. Let's get into the actual uh, movie and it opens with um, one of the more sort of chuckle-inducing quotes that I can think of. 
we have the sort of uh, quotation attributed to someone. And here it is. It's the darkest souls are not those which choose to exist within the hell of the abyss, but those which choose to break free from the abyss and move silently among us. Dr. Samuel Loomis. So they made up a quote that a character that we haven't met yet, unless you're a fan of the series, uh, has given the world. And it's just kind of awkward. And I don't, I don't know. Is this, can you guys explain to me how this is profound? Cause it doesn't really set the table for me. No takers on that no. one. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, sure. That's a, that's a no, hold no. on, Vic. Hold on. <laughs> that worked out well, Rich. I had, I had to fart, so got everything out there. Vic, try to yeah, put the uh, microphone around your butt next time because I didn't, I didn't get that. <laughs> and I, I may have to change your shorts. Sorry. <laughs> no. John, I I can't really I can't really attribute anything substantial to that quote. It seems like one of those things that just sounds good uh, as long as you don't think about it too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I would was... that said, I would totally read Doctor Loomis's book. I, I I wish that someone would just write that as a, a a work of fiction. It was not profound, but you do read it, and my initial reaction was, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I just kind of find the quote comical in the sense that these dark souls are in an abyss and it's so weird that they kind of would rather hang out among us. Like, ooh, really? You don't want to just like sit in the hell of the abyss like forever? Uh, okay, oh, that's crazy. You sure you want to move among us? That that doesn't sound fun. I mean, the abyss sounds really cool, right? It's It's ludicrous is what I'm saying. Yes. But it does mirror the 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 first Halloween does open with the the Halloween night quote that I cannot uh, recall off the top of my head. Um, so but I it, wonder it, if he just if he felt some obligation to open with uh, some sort of quote on a black screen. Well, I don't recall actually the quote that you're talking about, but I assume it was uh, Nietzsche or something, right? Wasn't it? Um, I don't know. I, I know we've had a Nietzsche quote in this uh, series recently. But I'm sure it was by somebody who's real and not a fictional character. Uh, so that's that's kind of the larger point. Anyway, that sets the table. And then we move into this. Rob Zombie has never stated, is this in the 70s? Is this, I think he's intentionally sort of uh, leaving it open when this uh, story takes place, when we meet the uh, the Myers family. And, but it looks pretty, you know, recognizable as we kind of pull back on yet another Haddonfield, Illinois title card with October 31st. And we see the Myers house, which does bear a strong resemblance to previous Myers houses in the franchise. And then we cut to, um, I guess, pet mice in the, the room of Michael Myers. And this is actually one of the big talking points, the initial talking points of the film. One of the things that Rob Zombie brings to everything and certainly intentionally and willfully brought to this movie is that he wants everything to be real. One of the ramifications of that was in the character of Michael was that this movie goes out of its way to lend some psychological realism to the character 
in that he's a psychopath. Well, what are the things that psychopaths do? They begin with animals. They harm animals as they're working their way up to humans. And then he includes the broken home, which the first film did not really suggest, the original Halloween. We've got the bullying at school. Like, he's working his way through a a checklist and checking all of the boxes to explain why someone would become a psychopathic murderer. It wants to give you a sort of real world uh, explanation for how a, a boy becomes the shape. Vic, what's your, do you like that? Does it, how, how basically do you feel about the film more or less completely jettisoning any sort of supernatural element and going for what Rob Zombie believes is a uh, accurate psychological portrait of a, of a, a boy gone wrong? Well, I think it's what's interesting to me is that number one, I think this is the right off the bat, he is deviating substantially from the original Halloween. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, when we see the parents when they show up and are like, Michael, uh, you know, they're in like evening wear, like Mm -hmm. they've just come from a party. And I think that was that was part of the deal with the original Halloween was that. Michael came from a normal home uh, that he did not have the upbringing of a psychopath. And so there's a there's a certain sense in which he leaves this huge amount. Carpenter leaves this huge amount of sort of unexplained about what triggered what tripped and everything else, which is what leaves, you know, pundits like us talking about, well, the psychosexual aspects of his relationship with his sister and everything else. Which is all interesting and well and good and sort of fun to do, but Zombie lays out a very clear intention here, which is, no, like, we're going to talk about how this kid actually became this, and we're not going to leave that part of it a mystery. Which leads, just skipping ahead a little bit, one of the things that I like is the casting of Tyler Maine as Michael Myers, because... He wants a guy who could actually snap somebody's neck or smash through a door. And I think that that you see that that trail of realism in spite of, you know, Michael Myers surviving several gunshots. But more so than the first film, you see this this distinct sort of trail of realism through it. One of the things that I found really interesting about these opening scenes and especially that very first scene, I know we've talked about it and how, again, just how ugly and kind of dirty it feels like it's it, it it's uncomfortable to watch it's so intensely sexual all of the comments that they're talking about william forsyth is talking about you know some ladies tits at the bar and blah 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 and like and then the daughter comes judith comes in and he says some things about judith and he looks at her in a, a very sort of lascivious way and one of the things that i really thought was that that in addition to painting this realistic picture of the creation of a psychopath, he's also leaning into the psychosexual stuff that we talked about. And I think you'll see as we, as we get further into it, the, the ways in which that does get very specific, but I think it starts right here. Like it really starts with this conversation that this is the kind of house that he's brought up in. The fact that his mother is a stripper, I think it's, it's not an accident that that he is subsequently triggered by nudity in women and and sort of sexual activity and sexual dialogue 
it's much more on the nose here where I do think it's probably unconscious in the, the, the Carpenter film. Uh, although I still think it's present, but I do think it's unconscious. He said that that's not an element of it. We talked a lot in resurrection about Jamie Lee Curtis kissing Michael and like this kind of vaguely incestuous vibe between them that again, that's been almost totally unspoken. It's all just kind of the stuff that the horror nerds like us are, are pulling apart and finding those things in these movies. Zombie is leaning into that and we're going to get it in a much more direct way here that I, that I actually find interesting. I think he's saying, okay, this is here. Let's explore it. Let's explore what goes into making something like this, someone like this. So let's explore what would trigger them. I like it. I think it works. Rich, what's your feeling about the whole origin of Michael as we're getting in this early scene? I also like it. It's going to be divisive in the sense that, especially if you're, if you are a fan of the series, especially the original, you can look at this and say it's removing the mystique and the the mystery and the supernatural elements, and that's that's absolutely true. This is just a different movie. It's a different movie about a different character who wears the same mask and acts the same way, but the story it's telling you is is about you know, like you said, the the development of this person and how they got there, and to that end. While there's some some plot holes, it essentially does its job, and I buy the way that it that it builds it up. And I think that the character of Michael is pretty consistent from here on to the to the end of the movie, and so it works for me. I again, for me, I don't know that the idea of that this is rooted in realism is something that I buy. Uh, everyone seems kind of over the top not even kind of, kind of over the top is not accurate. Everyone seems over the top. It is this almost hyper real world um, that I guess would be required to, to fully form someone as deranged as, as Michael is. So for me, that works. And I absolutely agree with Vic and, and I felt the same way. And it is a little on the nose even that it is this story that sorry to, to throw out, the buzzwords early, but it's almost the story of this uh, like psychopathic toxic masculinity where Michael is essentially this kid who not only is a, is a psychopath, but it turns out that his trigger is the fact that he couldn't deal with the fact that his mom was a stripper. And so then, you know, anything that gets sexualized in his life becomes this point of, of rage. Um, and that's seated pretty early here. Well, and worth pointing out, too, that his his infant sister then is this point of innocence, right. that there's nothing sexualized about her and that that might explain why he's sort of drawn to her. But he does have this very sweet relationship with the baby when he calls her boo. Interesting that that explains in a way, certainly that that neither the first film nor the second film, which is the one that establishes that she's his, his sister, they never sort of explain the connection, why it is that he keeps coming back to her. And, you know, and eventually they sort of invoke Celtic mythology to do mm-hmm. <laughs> to do that. And 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 so it's nice to see it sort of laid out in a way that's psychologically uh, uh, consistent, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he's really just he spends the rest of the movie essentially yearning for like peace and innocence. And who can't relate to that? We're all Michael Myers in some way. (laughs) (laughs) I can't give it that much coherence. And I think I'll be pointing out how it, it falls apart and doesn't really maintain a consistent psychological profile. Uh, I I think that 
he's every time that zombie finds an element that a conceptual fragment of explanation for this character that has potential, he throws it out there, but he doesn't know what to do with it. And so it just, it, the movie kind of fumbles it and moves on to something else. And it just kind of gives you these clues, but the pieces don't fit together at all for me. And yeah, I mean, I get in at this point in the movie, we're showing this extremely dysfunctional family and we're, we're seeing that the, this kid who he's slightly androgynous with the hair and, you know, he's a little lumpy and he doesn't, he doesn't have the traits that would allow you to be a traditional alpha and be left alone. And so he's bullied and his sexuality is questioned uh, mercilessly by this Ronnie character, this piece of trash it's definitely understandable that he he would have no healthy avenue for whatever sexuality he he has at this point. And I I do think that's intrinsic to the Michael Myers character. And I'm glad that the movie is, is dealing with that because as we saw in the first movie, you know, very much it's from the start. The one thing we know about this kid is that sexuality is what sets him off. You know, the, the sexuality of others and the sort of inappropriateness or remove that, that that might have from what his expectations are as he's supposed to be again, back to almost Jason Voorhees, like uh, older people, kids are supposed to be looking after him and instead he's neglected because they're getting it on. And how does he feel about that? Because it's a, it's a family member in this case. And it's all very, there's a cocktail of, of psychology here that is interesting, but I just don't see in this film, he's already killing animals and we do kind of get an element of the incestuous quality when he sort of touches his sister right before he stabs her. But I don't, I don't get a clear through line from one act that he commits to the next. Maybe we don't need that, but I just, I feel more that rather than zombie having a strong vision for this character, I feel like he's more clutching at straws and throwing out different things. There's nothing here really that makes it sort of compelling and ambiguous and you can draw your own conclusions that the story and the, the representation of him is not a fascinating uncertainty. It's something that keeps undercutting itself at every turn and ultimately goes nowhere. Well, John, let me ask you, because I, when we did the first film, we spent a long time talking about the scene where Michael puts on the sheet and Bob's glasses and sort mm-hmm. of pretends to be Bob. And I drew an interesting parallel in when Michael shows up with when, after Judith's boyfriend is left and he sort of touches her leg in that moment. She initially thinks it's her boyfriend. That is sort of an act that he then recreates later on with Linda. And I found, and then I felt like that scene worked much better because it had this mirror image because we're leaning into the, the, the sort of sexual aspects of the character that of him trying to figure out how to get close, how to deal with these women and sex and all this kind of stuff that sort of has, has clearly sort of twisted him up. I thought that the scene played better in this film with uh with Linda that it did in the first film and it's precisely because of that scene that we get with him and his sister uh initially 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. And, and to tie back to that and what you said earlier about his mom being a stripper and, and the bully in the bathroom is all referencing, you know, again, the sexuality of his mother and his sister and this kind of kind of cramming it down his throat almost that his no, no pun intended. The only sexualized beings in his world are our family members and, and, yeah. and sort of what do you do with that? Something that the movies glancingly touch on, I, I remember you know, thinking in The Curse of Michael Myers, the, the, the scene where the woman is, is taking her clothes off and listening to someone speculate on the radio about Michael Myers' sexuality in the very room that, uh, that he, he killed his sister in. Like, there, we're always, it's kind of like the, the theory of destiny that keeps coming up in these movies. Like, the filmmakers know there's something there, but we nobody quite knows how to really explore it or make a decisive, insightful rendering of, of this theme or potential theme or uh, aspect of humanity. And so we, we toy around with these things, but I just don't think anybody has, has yet done the definitive portrait of Michael Myers and his, his twisted psych, uh, sexuality. I think that's true, but I think that zombie is closer than anybody else, that's including fair. Carp, including Carpenter, and including David Gordon Green. I felt I I really did feel the the shadings of the 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 full character here. Uh, he doesn't get every. I mean, again, you're right. It 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 doesn't fit together in a sort of 100 percent coherent way, largely because I think he has to cram a second movie in at the end of it where he doesn't really get to explore it. But like I said, for the first time, I really understood or felt like I understood Michael's uh, obsession with Laurie. And that's the crux of the movie in a way that, that just made sense with him as a character. It's frustrating to me, though, and this is, yeah, like a larger, this isn't about the early going of the film. He establishes that he calls her Boo and she's an innocent and he kills everyone else, but not her. And then he returns... And shows her a picture of them together. I think it's the most intriguing moment in the movie, that that late scene. But she ruins it because she has no idea who he is or who she is. And she just goes for the damn knife. And by stabbing him, we can get back into the sort of perfunctory stalk and chase dynamic. So there won't be any more ambiguity or possibility in these two characters' relationship. And I think that's kind of where it squanders whatever potential that we might have because, all right, let's say he comes back because he feels a human connection to her and he wants to reconnect with her sister in some way. Well, he does that by killing all of her friends. I just don't, I don't buy that. And I, th- I do think it's interesting that originally in the script, she was, he was supposed to actually speak in that scene and call her boo. One of the things that's interesting about this movie, as you pointed out, is that Rob Zombie really is doing something new and different with it. Well, maybe he should have spoken. I think that would have somehow made this even more unique. But we just, it never really, it's all teased. All of this is interesting. It's teased, but for me, there's no payoff to any of it. I also feel like it's a, and I know that this is us getting ahead of ourselves, but, you know, while we could play armchair screenwriter all day, that they also ignored the chance for Lori to ever have any under like she never finds out what the story is. Yeah. That seems like a missed opportunity because then 
you could kind of justify her continuing to fight him off with with the knife as her reluctance to like go down the same path that the rest of her family did. But that doesn't happen. She is completely ignorant of the entire thing all the way up until the end. Which makes it a hell of a lot simpler, but a lot less resonant, and there's a lot less depth to it. And I, I just felt like it was a way to kind of keep the movie in very genre uh, formulaic dynamics when there was a every at every turn where this movie could really do something cool and different that we haven't seen again. Like one of the things I like so much about the last movie as flawed as it is, is that it was putting Michael in different situations. This movie doesn't do that. And that's, that's really frustrating to me. It would have been cool if D. Wallace had been a fan of Kung Fu movies. <laughs> <laughs> and then when Michael breaks in, you know, and she, anyways, you guys see where I'm going with that. I, I gotta say Happy Halloween, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone had this reaction to this movie where, when we talked about first impressions, that it was that this is the section, they, this first hour or however long it is, is the thing that they remember about it. And when you say, like, he's not doing anything new, I would argue that, especially for the time that this movie came out, I'm not saying it's the first movie to do this, but when you said Halloween remake and this was the first hour of the movie, it felt pretty fresh, at least when the movie came out. Um, I don't mm -hmm. feel like a whole lot of other horror movies. And I think that uh, the second, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 remake did something similar with Leatherface to, to less effect. But this approach is at least felt like a novel approach to a reboot of a franchise like this. It's I mean, it's structurally I can't think off the top of my head of a movie that maybe you know what? This is interesting. Structurally, would you compare it to Full Metal Jacket? Mm. I In could. A, yeah. It, yeah. Sort it of. seems to be two two different films that are sort of tied together by this. Uh, this sort of one thematic thing. I don't know. I that was that was just what popped into my head. But it's still yes, I agree. It's it's something different. It's something new, and it feels again, especially after getting through you know eight of these fucking monsters. Like to watch something that feels different and fresh and interesting carries a lot of weight. It's a really strong approach to go the prequel route. You know, I think his instincts were right, and I. I haven't done enough research to really understand exactly at what point he was forced to sort of shoehorn in the remake, but I think it structurally fucks the film. I think it makes it kind of a complete train wreck that we're doing a prequel and a remake in the same movie. I think it messes up the pacing throughout. Um, I think that if this movie had just been a prequel, it would have been much better and I can't say that if it was just a remake, it would have been better, but I think that the remake aspects of this film, the stuff that we saw in that last hour would have been better. As you said, Vic, if they breathed more and we got more, you know, build up and suspense and tension, I wouldn't have minded seeing that put through the 2007 Rob Zombie lens, you know, but because we're trying to do so much and it's such a accelerated rush job remake, I, I think that it makes that last hour boring, but at least this part, like it, it, it is 
a worthy effort and it's a different side of this character in this whole franchise than we've ever seen. And I, I will always give it credit for that. And I, again, when I saw it, it, I, I'm not going to say it blew me away, but I was, I was riveted by this part. The movie that I would have let Rob zombie make is a movie that culminates in Michael Myers escaping from the asylum. You could have ended with, Essentially, the scene where, you know, Loomis pulls up and the people are wandering around and he escapes. You could have done some different stuff with it. But that that feels like a natural climax to the story that he's telling in the first half of this. And you're right. It does. Like you could almost hear Bob Weinstein being like, nope, I need dead teenagers. Get me a topless girl. Uh, uh, getting stabbed because otherwise I'm not greenlighting this. I think it would have completely worked because all of the ingredients are there for it to have still have a satisfying climax and not feel like just sort of a, you know, bridge to the next movie. Because first we have the relationship between him and his mother, which in an hour, I'm sure you guys agree. I'm invested in it. Like I, I like her performance. I like their relationship. I think it's the most interesting thing about the kid is his relationship with his mother. So that works. And yeah. then you also have Dr. Loomis and the relationship that they build, uh, which, you know, again, say what you want about this versus the previous movies. We devote so much more to the, the period in time where Lo- Loomis was giving this kid a chance. And I, I think that there is something inherently compelling in that. And there's something compelling about him turning his back on, on Michael when he does. And then you even throw in, if you wanted to, he has a relationship with Danny Trejo and that character who's always on yep. his side in a difficult point in his life. So I think between those three relationships all going south on him in the third act of the movie, I think it could have been pretty poignant and powerful it, to have him just leave having blown it all up and you know going off to seize his his destiny. I think it still could have be- felt satisfying and poignant and conclusive uh, to have those three arcs uh, end. And, and then, you know, set him free to be the character that, that we know he will be from this point on. It would have been a great origin story of this iconic killer. Speaking of origin, uh, since I get the feeling that we're moving towards the, the mental hospital here, uh-huh. how did y'all feel about the introduction of the mask? Actually, didn't he put the mask on before he killed the mouse in the very first scene? No, he's, he no. puts on the clown mask. That's what I mean. Yeah. Oh, that's what I mean, though, is it's the introduction of the idea of his obsession with masks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, that's a really good topic. Uh, I think that this movie, one of the clear and coherent things that Zombie applies to this story is the idea of Michael's relationship to masks. I mean, it comes up again, again and again and again. He says a lot of things that are interesting, one being that he's ugly and he wants to hide his face in, in that regard. There's that. And it's also he feels free and, and, and safe behind a mask. And like the masks uninhibit him and they allow him to, to, to no longer have the emotional turmoil that the human side of him feels when he puts the mask on, uh, that uncertainty is is gone and he's free to to do you know to indulge his his darker impulses and i think all of that 
Like there's even more to it than I just said. I think that the, this movie hits that over and over and over. And I think that's actually one of the more interesting things that in this movie, Michael creates his own masks and there's tiny little insights or clues or, you know, shadings of character into each of the designs. And I, I, I actually found that really, really cool. That's one of my favorite things about the whole movie. Yeah, I agree. I jotted down. I think he says at one point in the mask that no one sees me. Mm-hmm. And I, I made the note, yeah, that he is uh, he's a different person with the mask on, that he's able to separate the sort of the psychopath that's in him from the 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 boy that he is. One of the things that's interesting is you see him get more and more attached to the mask and to the person that he is in the mask. Again, you get the 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 mask getting ripped off in the carpenter version. Here you have him voluntarily taking it off, and it's it actually has some symbolic significance that with his baby sister, he can suddenly, for the first time, go back to the the person that he was or acknowledge some sort of humanity that he used to have. He really gets a lot of mileage out of that, uh, and I think it works. Well, it seems to allow him to to fade into this disassociative state when he puts a mask on. It allows him, as you said, to hide himself and it sets him free. It soothes him. It makes everything simple for him. The problem where it breaks down is that we're supposed to believe during the scenes that bridge the murders of his family to him breaking out that there's a slow transformation here where he becomes increasingly reliant on the masks I don't really love the sort of idea that he's still, is he pretending to care about his mother? Is he pretending to have emotions when he's not wearing the mask? Is he pretending to make a degree of effort with Loomis that he appears to, to make? Or is it just so simple that like over time, there's no catalyst at all. Just over time, he simply loses his humanity and, all of that goes away. And I think that Vic, the, what you're getting at with like the idea of him taking the mask off later and trying to connect with his, his sister, I would love that. But the fact that he kills his only friend, Danny Trejo, in a very sadistic manner, I just – I don't really see that there's any of Michael's humanity left to manifest based on what he does. It does not sell me. There's no through line throughout all of this. That tells me that he isn't entirely empty, that there is still something motivating him that would connect to the relationship that he appeared to have with his mother. And to me, it would be so much more interesting if you did commit to that. And I really thought he was going after Boo, you know, because she was the last person in the world that mattered to him. And I just don't think it's there. I just don't think it's there. I think it's all just sort of, you know, it fakes this, it fakes left, it fakes right, but it's not going, it doesn't know what direction it wants to go in. It's just toying with us. There is an argument to be made that that the Danny Trejo character, which that's, it's certainly a confusing story point as to why it is that he kills him. And even Danny Trejo is questioning it. You know, there's something to be said for the fact that he was caught at a point where it was too late to be forming new relationships. Whereas the the baby Boo, like, was there at a point where there was still some humanity left in him. 
So he he was sort of frozen, you know, like the, the kid, you can argue that the kid was in a state of arrested development where he had this relationship with the baby. And then you saw him descend into this this state where he became further and further behind the mask. I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like they actually did a pretty decent job of slowly progressing you with this character who was just constantly pulling further and further and further back as a result of isolation and, you know, being told what terrible, terrible things he had done. I don't think it's perfect, but I also don't feel like it was handled as, as poorly um, as you reacted to it. Yeah, fuck you, John. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I will say, though, and I, I actually wrote this down, too. I found the therapy scenes with Malcolm McDowell pretty boring. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got to get I got to give Wendy a shout out where we were watching it. And like on the third one, Wendy was just like, what the hell is his treatment? Is it exactly like mm -hmm. all he does is sit him down, ask him how he's feeling and then make 16 millimeter films for him. Like, what's the <laughs> therapy? Emily did not watch this with me, but as a therapist, I feel like she would have had some criticism for Dr. Loomis's methods. I don't know what it is. You know, I watch the blooper reel and sometimes it's a bad idea to include a, a blooper reel on a, on a movie because you start to see how seriously or not seriously people are taking the film. And throughout this like blooper reel, it's Malcolm McDowell breaking up Sherry moon zombie, like just, cracking her up and having this extended, like, I don't know how many minutes, if not hours they shot of him and Brad Dorif in this car, but uh, just like ad libbing absurdly ridiculous things. And I, but it shows up in the movie. I'm sure you guys watched the uh, unrated cut, right? Like, I don't even think you can get the theatrical cut that easily. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When Michael smashes through the car window and is pulling them at the, towards the end of the film, is pulling out, uh, you know, his sister and, and or Dr. Loomis. He, Loomis goes, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I, I just yeah. found it so ridiculous. And it reminded me of how much of this movie is semi-ad-libbed. Look, I'm not going to say Malcolm McDowell is not committed or professional, because he is. But, like, I just, I feel overall that everyone in this movie, including the director, are somewhat adrift. And they're just kind of shooting from the hip and they're figuring it out along the way. But they don't really, they're not taking it all that seriously. And because yeah. there really isn't, this is what we're saying here. This is what this movie's about. And, like, I connect strongly with this in some way. No, they're just... Like, well, fuck, we all got paid to do a Halloween movie. Let's, uh, let's make a Halloween movie. Can I tell you that about 10 years ago, I was working for a, a commercial production company that got hired to do a, uh, they were shooting like the, the interstitial scenes for a Command and Conquer video game. It was, you know, the, the sort of the United States versus Japan and George Takei was the emperor of Japan and Malcolm McDowell was the president of the United States. I've never seen a human being transition from, all right, hey, we're on the set, we're fucking around, okay, action. And like, boom, he was 
all of a sudden he knew all of his lines and he would just rattle them off and like you could just tell like he could really just turn on the like Malcolm McDowell actor off of I'm a drunk Englishman mm-hmm. with just astonishing speed. It was really cool. I actually wound up, I was in line behind him at the craft services table trying to think of something to say to him, and I couldn't come up with anything. It, it must have been 2010, so it would have been after this came out. I'm I'm a little pissed at myself for not coming up with something uh, just to chat with him about, but... Yeah, I can see him on the set being not a, a a distraction, but that for him, he can just fuck around and then flip a switch and 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 be in the scene and be in the character. Uh, but that might not be the case for everybody, and how that would pull scenes out of the the sort of realm of realism. He's loose. He can be loose because he's such a consummate professional. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean. I'm not. I'm definitely not saying that Malcolm McDowell. I mean, he he says something on one of these special features where he insinuates strongly that he was happy to be working on a movie of this budget at this time, yeah. <laughs> and you know he took the film seriously. Let's definitely um, make no mistake. I I have a personal anecdote that I'm going to slip in here at some point along the lines of what you just said. A relationship with the cast. But I'm gonna I'm gonna let leave that organically, and I want to say that it's worthy of note. If we talk about one scene in this movie in any detail, for me it has to be when Michael kills the bully in the woods. Now I, I want to let you guys like share your your thoughts first. But this this is the scene that was indelible for me. Uh, Rich, what's uh, you know, how did it strike you when he he tracks down the bully who's been tormenting him in the in, and he he murders him with a, a it looks like a log, I guess, like a big heavy branch. Yeah, I was confused, but it sounds like a shovel. I don't know. So that part, <laughs> that threw me off right away. It felt momentarily shocking. I got to admit, it didn't make a huge impression on me. Although they do sort of succinctly sell the the difference between Michael wearing the mask and Michael not wearing the mask. He has the moment where he, he lifts it up to take the, the flyer that the kid had been taunting him with that featured his mother. Um, it's like a strip club flyer. And so he takes his mask off to, to take that out of the kid's pocket. And then he puts the mask back on and can, and resumes beating the kid to death. I, yeah, I gotta say it didn't make a super strong impression on me. It, it seemed fine. John, first off, I just want to express my concern that you're going to confess to murdering a bully on the podcast. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I think that's going to be good for, like, our downloads. But, uh, by the way, if you're listening, you know, rate us and review us. Because John John might confess to murder later. You don't know. Um, <laughs> it's hard for me to express how much I was dismayed because this was around the time when I figured out that it was the kid from Spy Kids. Um <laughs> so that sort of colored my my perception of this scene i but i actually do remember watching in the movie theater and finding it tremendously effective like this is this is the kind of shit like the way that zombie shoots it where it's the quick cuts again the mask up the mask down the shots of like the trees where you're almost kind of getting the perspective of the kid who's getting who's getting Mm -hmm. murdered uh the performance when this the, he's begging for his life. I mean, it's 
this is the kind of hardcore harrowing shit that that I think you would argue that the earlier Halloweens really didn't have, by and large. I would actually argue that I found it pretty effective. On top of which, again, just the, 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 from a scripting perspective, the shit that this kid says and does to young Michael is, like, horrific. Like, they really do sort of paint a world of people who seem to deserve this. I love the moment when the kid is, the bully is leaving the school, about to walk home through <laughs> the woods. And 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 en route, he passes a kid wearing a beanie cap, rips the beanie cap off, spits into it, and throws it for yeah. no good reason. I absolutely love it. And thank you, Vic, for uh, – I think you, you, you put that very well, and you touched on a lot of why this sequence is special. As, as someone who – if you're just, like, watching this film and you're not necessarily – you don't know what to expect – Right. Like this is the first kill of the film. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, like originally I did not necessarily expect it to move this quickly. And to me, there's just something more disturbing about the almost a, it's almost a trope where the bullied kid beats up the bully. And I don't know exactly why I didn't realize it would go that far. But at the moment where I'm like, oh, my God, no, he's just going to fucking kill this kid. That that chilled me. It chilled me. And it, there's also, again, yeah, the the sort of humanity of the of the bully in that moment, in the in the begging and the vulnerability and the realization that this is going to a level that it, it never should. I, I found it really unsettling and i found the sequence completely all of those techniques that you're talking about with the you know the the camera work and the intercutting and the performances like this is a fantastic first rate sequence and it's very unsettling and it sets the table for what what's to come and whether or not the rest of the movie entirely uh, fulfills that potential, well, that's up for debate. But I think that you know when you see that, that this kid is is going to be a, a menace to society. You know, like, you know, he is not fucking around. And I, I, it's chilling. It's a very dark take on Revenge of the Nerds. Yes. Lambda, Lambda, yeah. Lambda would be very disappointed in this pledge. Bernie, Bernie, Case, Bernie Casey is not accepting you into his fraternity. So from there, uh, we get the callback to uh, the, the thing, which also was in the original Halloween. And I do think there's something like in a nerdy sort of uh, film geeky way. I, I like the idea that this movie is suggesting that every year at Halloween, they play the Howard Hawks Halloween on somebody's TV station and, you know, the people watching it and the circumstances vary, but that will always kind of be on, on Halloween night somewhere. And that's, that's one of the weird little through lines between all of the films in the series with that there's, Oh shit. (laughs) Oh my God. I don't know what it is about this beer, but it's like it pops. Like that, that's the third one of these uh, wolf pups that I've had, and it's it's sprayed beer all over my everything. So I'm in trouble now. Okay, hopefully it didn't ruin my computer. 
Um, way, to, way to paint a mental picture for the listener. <laughs> <laughs> I should have called uh, baseball games, shouldn't I? Well, one of the changes that Zombie um, has with the narrative, the fundamental narrative of Michael's Night of Terror as a child, is that Judith and her boyfriend, uh, Steve, I believe, in this film, uh, they... They they spend more than 15 seconds having sex, which is, I guess, progress. And we actually dispatch Steve in this film. He's one of the, you know, the guy, the, the Minuteman got out of there, hit it and quit it. But uh, poor Steve goes down for a sandwich and uh, he gets dispatched with a aluminum bat. But uh, right in the lead up to that, we're intercutting between mom uh, stripping Actually, you know, by the way, I was thinking somewhat in relation to this movie, stripping is such a, it's a misnomer. When was the last time that you went to a strip club and somebody actually stripped? No, they just dance wearing very little. Uh, Why do we call them strippers? I don't know. Just saying. I mean, there are definitely real strip clubs. I don't see a lot of that. Where people really strip. Really? So they start with a bunch of clothes and then they take them off. Yeah. uh, Hmm. You have never been to Texas. No. No, I have not. Well, and, oh, this and, is just happening everywhere down there. <laughs> yeah, and I have never been to a strip club. Okay, so <laughs> let's sorry, that's, that's... let's leave that there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Sherry, Sherry Moon is is obviously working at some kind of like go go bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a careful distinction, Rich. Well, well drawn. Yeah, she. Um, I don't believe she takes off any any clothes. So she's doing her dancing, and, and we're hearing uh, what what's the song called? Love, uh, love, love hurts. Love, love hurts. hurts. Love hurts. Thank you guys. Which yes. I which I actually thought in throughout the movie, I thought the the musical choices were actually quite good. Zombie also is credited as music supervisor on this film. By the way, yeah, he well, wears a lot of get- hats. That's if that's part of where the budget goes, I think it actually pays dividends. I thought this was again just as a as a as a directorial choice, like juxtaposing one with the other, uh uh I thought really worked. I thought it was very interesting. All right, so it's her love that we're talking about because or or are we suggesting that Michael loves and it hurts him? Because obviously he's I pissed. I think it's just more tonally, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's an inter- it's an interesting counterpoint to what we're to what we're seeing and what we're building up to. Yeah, like it doesn't have to be a direct correlation to the lyrics so much as it is just an interesting thing to put beside this uh tonally in terms of the the sort of emotions and nostalgia the things that it evokes. But part of the song is playing over uh, Michael, like sadly waiting on the curb because his mom's not there and his sister's not taking him trick or treating. And again, this is the part of the film where he has emotions and he's he's human. And I guess we're we're led to believe that he's um, suffering in some way because you know what his life is and what it isn't, and and so on. But I, I just don't get a direct through line. You know what? My my mom's not here, and I'm not getting to trick or treat, and my sister's banging some dude. I guess I'm going to kill everybody. Now that's that is one of the things that I that I did think was that there should have been a real 
trigger. Mm-hmm. Now, I yeah. guess you would ar- what you would argue is that the trigger was the bully. That when he put on the mask and killed the bully, he had crossed a line that he wasn't going to come back from. But just in that moment, I would have liked something more. And it didn't have to be much. Like, it didn't, you know, it could have been something subtle. You're right. He literally does just stand up and be like, well, everybody's going <laughs> to die. The catalysts are what's missing from this film. And I know there can be too many facile catalysts and obvious and scripted moments that are, oh, well, this is clearly a turning point for a character and all of that. But this movie goes so far the other way that I just, I'm left unfulfilled by so many turns that should be motivated and just kind of aren't. Um, But I, I agree, Vic, that yeah, clearly... It was a watershed moment where he killed the the bully, but he just doesn't seem to be carrying any momentum from that. He seemed to kind of go back to being a a normal-ish kid and just kind of, you know, being mopey, like with the candy corn and whatnot and and the waiting at the curb. And this doesn't look like a kid. Oh my God, I just killed somebody. You know, everything's different. Well, I'm... I mean, I'm sure that a a psychologist can poke holes in this, but I do think that that is indicative of the a uh, oh god, why am I blanking on this psychopathic, psychopathic mindset? Yeah. yeah, yeah, where it's like it, it, essentially what's happened now is that you know he also killed the animals like dispassionately and w- for with no reason. So is it just sort of that like the taps on now that he's you know killed the bully, and so it's like what am I going to do now? Like like I don't like he shouldn't be sitting there like shaking and in shock because then he wouldn't be a psychopath. Like he should just be sort of casually sitting there when the, the urge takes him to go in and start offing people. But it's almost like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, where on the one hand he still has emotions and he seems uh, upset about this or that and he's sad and, then you flip that around and he just kind of casually grabs the masking tape and the knife and is like, I'm going to go kill Ronnie now. It doesn't track for me. And and again, there are movies that sometimes it works really well where you're just always off balance and you don't know and it doesn't make sense and it's unpredictable. In this viewing of the movie, it doesn't work for me. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see him make that decision. Yep. And that's and that's what needed to happen. But that said, John, I thought of you and I wrote this down. He, you know, he gets Ronnie all taped up and then he cuts his throat. And I was like, now that's a fucking that's a that's a, a person getting their throat cut. Oh yeah, like John. John's going to be excited by that. I was. I was like, we we talked about throat cuts, uh, Rich, in the last few movies. The effects in this movie are great. Yeah. Although, other than this one. I actually felt like it was a surprisingly uh, bloodless movie for the number of kills. I just want to go off the the conversation we were talking about. The trigger is that it's also it's also strange because I don't don't think it's handled well either. That then he goes off and kills Ronnie in such a intricate and premeditated way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like a ritual killing where he to me seems like he it's kind of ridiculous that he manages to tape Ronnie up that much no matter how drunk he is without Ronnie waking up but that he put that much time and and thought into it before actually slitting his throat wouldn't it be great if you went back and like really zoomed in on every scene and realized that there was candy corn 
in every scene where he killed somebody and like that was the trigger because i fucking hate that i hate candy corn that makes me want to kill somebody I and circus peanuts he had circus peanuts too yeah the worst no the worst two candies yeah yeah no that is a throat slitting i'm watching it right now why you're looking at ronnie can we just speculate real quickly what is what is ronnie injured from that he can't, he can't even like cross the room when uh, I, when he's being baited by Sherry Moon Zombie earlier. DUI. <laughs> no, I think I think he was thrown from a, a mechanical bull. Oh, <laughs> Maybe an my, ATV my... crash or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently, William Forsyth was actually injured, and that's why they had to concoct all of this: is that he had broken his leg. Oh, it fit his character pretty well. It did absolutely. Oh. No, it adds a, a texture for sure. It seems like one of those like random choices, but it actually kind of makes sense if you're having a ten-year-old who needs to kill this guy. You know, you want to stack the deck as much as possible so that he can accomplish it. And you know, he's drunk and he's injured, and you duct tape him to the chair. It all you know sort of makes it uh, more plausible uh, or doable. That's how realistic Michael is you know he's not like uh he's not full of himself here and i think that does kind of uh increase the effect and the believability he sneaks up on the boyfriend and you know this is this is disturbing too when he just you know sneaks up on this poor guy uh who just banged his sister and gives him the old uh cattle treatment with the the harsh blow to the the skull and the Mm -hmm. twitching the twitching feet are very effective yeah it's very disturbing as he pounds him over and over and over again. How did it play for you when we see like a little kid wearing the full-size Michael Myers mask? Was that comical, effective, uh, something I else? I thought it was creepy. Yeah? I, I, yeah, I, I found it pretty unsettling. That Especially the fact that they used it, that they made sure that it was a tailor-made-sized mask <laughs> that was put on the kid, so it had this, it had a weird disproportionate, disproportionate um, effect and on top of that, you've got the Michael Meyer mask on the clown suit. So it was it was a it was a crazy mishmash of past and future for Michael. Uh, it worked for me. I found it initially kind of I was kind of snickering, and then like it as the scene went on, it got more and more disturbing. Rob Zombie is going to make bold choices with the visuals. You know what I mean? And like that's it. It's a perfect example of something where I was like. Francis Lawrence or Marcus Nispel are not going to do that. Yeah. Um, And so it's whether it works for you or not, like I kind of appreciate it. Absolutely. And it does kind of dovetail with the whole mask empowerment that Michael has throughout this film where he walks in and he looks at his semi naked sister and he wants to do something but he's not going to until he puts on a mask and it's right there. So that's the one that he puts on. What is kind of missing is that this mask having some additional value or meaning um, versus any other that he would return to it over those that he created with his own hands. I guess I would say that, well, I mean, he wears this at a very pivotal moment. So maybe that's, why it has uh, the significance to him. But the actual backstory of, you know, how the mask comes into the story at all 
is is not particularly significant, you know, especially compared to some of the other masks that he wears. I mean, like if he was going to be nostalgic about a mask, I, I would think the clown mask would be a number one, not this one. That doesn't bother me. Again, you're married to this mask and Zombie's going to tell a prequel, so he's going to connect the mask to the person that he becomes. Like, if you can't draw a straight through line, like, he's 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 kind of playing with... I feel like he's playing with the cards that he's dealt. Don't you think if you were charged with the idea of motivating this mask or giving it some kind of special importance that you couldn't have, you know, found one <laughs> so that we would believe that this is the the most important mask in a movie that's all about his masks. I mean, to be fair, it is, it is tied to a, to a sex act as the, the boyfriend yeah. who is like the, who is like the poor man, Seth green you know, <laughs> pull, pulls it out and says, but baby, I want to do it with the mask. So, you know, they did it with the mask and, and that was, that was it for Michael. M- Michael so wasn't is, there for that though. I don't believe. Was he? I don't think so. I, I, I think Michael just finds the mask as he walks up to her. But nonetheless, I mean, we certainly, I, I buy that he would put a mask on in, in that moment. Um, but, like, he has all of these masks at the uh, asylum. And instead he goes back and he's carefully hidden this mask in the house. And he puts that one on. And that's going to be what he wears for the rest of his his rampage. So I would like it to be a little more um, satisfying and understandable, but it isn't. So that's, yeah, that's, I, that's, I agree. Exact, that's exactly what Judas said. Hey, Linda too. She does. Yeah. There is some bitching in this movie about lack of sexual performance by the guys. So that at least we keep that thread going from the original film. It's comical initially to see this little kid with this mask walking down the hall but it, it quickly becomes more disturbing as he starts slashing at her with the knife. And one of the things that I was going to talk about, and I am not Mr. Uh, PC, overly critical film viewer, but I, I notice a, uh, a sort of perverse delight in having women crawling away from, from, a a killer where they're sort of in this abject pathetic state like several times in this film michael will just kill the guy almost instantly but the women he he messes with them he slashes with them and they're sort of sobbing and moaning and groaning and crawling and he he just kind of follows them and yeah, okay, you can say that that's, well, that's his pathology, but I, I kind of see a through line to Rob Zombie's films in general. It it kind of creeps me out on a level that I don't appreciate. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. <laughs> I, I even feel like the camera work, like there's there's moments where just the way the camera will linger on the actresses or even sometimes specifically be like pointing at their chest and then kind of hold for a second and then pan up. Like it's not a film that treats its female subjects very well for a movie that has so much emphasis on its female characters. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of lurid and prurient in a way that's 
really disturbing because it's it's not even about basic sexuality or nudity or you know even sort of traditional well, whatever you would call it s and m it's more just this almost lingering on on the true violence and suffering and pain i'm kind of uncomfortable with it especially in that like almost every female victim has the exact same experience in this movie and 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 you could definitely apply this to uh devil's rejects as well yeah though though none more than annie if if we mm-hmm. if, if we ever get to her she has a really like a extremely prolonged um does she ever actually die? She does. No, she not. survives. She's in. Oh. She's in part two, and I am sure that she's going to be just fine. <laughs> I feel like part two is just going to be Annie hits the lottery and uh, retires to Boca Raton. <laughs> but even D. Wallace gets this sort of protracted crawling on the ground, moaning. Oh, and, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, to be fair, she was the mother in ET. <laughs> That should be noted, Vic. Thank you for that. (laughs) We get this weird sepia-toned sequence with the newscaster talking about the the various crimes, which, again, does sort of add a verisimilitude. The realism that that, uh, Michael Myers, Rob Zombie, is always looking for uh, in, in his films. And we get some additional details of the crimes that we didn't necessarily see. Say what you want about Sherry Moon Zombie as an actress or this character. Like, there's a this is one of the few characters we can be really empathetic to in her experience. I found her sort of conflicted and struggling, and and the the relationship she seems to have with Michael felt real. Oh, I agree. Well, that's. I mean, I think that's part of the again the 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 Rob Zombie aesthetic is that. You know, he these are sort of typically sort of awful people. I mean, again, even in this case where I think they're the less awful, certainly than you think of the Devil's Rejects, the opening interaction between her and and Ronnie and some of that kind of stuff. She has a switch that she flips with Michael, especially. I feel like that she has a tenderness and she has a sort of connection with him and stuff. That Zombie, as as much as he paints this kind of awful struggling world of these terrible people behaving terribly towards each other. He does have a sympathy toward them. Uh, and that's really what you see is that, you know, the, the, uh, the Deborah character, like she's, she's a fully formed person and she, she loves her son and she loves her kids and she's in this terrible situation. She's doing these terrible things to try and get out of it. Uh, or at least to try and survive. Um, but that sympathy toward these some of these people anyway, certainly towards her, and I think even a little bit towards Michael is something that's that's new and different, and that's one of the things that, that Rob Zombie brings to the table. Absolutely. That's fair and should be noted that in expanding and zeroing in on the backstory and the circumstances of Michael Myers and what created him, he is giving us a, a much warmer or at least uh, psychologically specific view of everyone, including the mother. And it, it just so happens that she's sort of a resonant archi- archetype. You know, we don't get any true nuance or depth to her, but like 
it's not just a stereotype, you know, the stripper mom who cares about her kids. There's enough there and enough at least faith or belief or conviction in her performance and in the writing of the character that it just doesn't feel like a stock kind of character. And I think that that brings some necessary heart to the movie. It does elevate it. And you really see it in the scenes in the hospital. Yes. That her her relationship with him there where she's again because she's not dealing with Ronnie and she's you know, she's not dealing with Judith because they're dead because Michael killed them, but you know, she is still clearly a dedicated mother who comes to her son. She comes all the time. She brings him the picture of him with Lori. Um or Angel, as she was known. Angel. Yeah. It's true. Um, but yeah, you could see that she is committed to him. And what's more, I mean, when we get to the scene where he, you know, I mean, again, he, he murders the nurse as he's slipping further and further away. Um, the fact that she kills herself is such a testament to a, what, I mean, more convincing about what Michael has become than anything that Dr. Loomis says that she can't bear the fact that she has seen what he is or what he's becoming and can't bear to be responsible for it, the responsibility that she holds for it. Uh, I just think that that makes her a really interesting character. Unfortunately, I, she, she wasn't a swinger who got drunk and, you know, murdered Ben Tramer in a car accident. Uh, Cause that's a far more interesting backstory for <laughs> Lori Strode's mother, I think, but. Oh, you derailed my train of thought when you mentioned Ben Tramer. <laughs> you know, but Vic, I was actually going to ask you about this, you know, as a parent. Um, how did you feel about the fact that she kills herself with a baby left alive? Like, to me, as someone who, who does not have yet a child, I was almost thinking... Wow, I mean, it's like way more fucked up or bleak that even though she can still raise a child, a child who depends on her, that she, you know, by all rights should be just as connected to as any of the dead kids or her uh, psycho son, that she could walk away from the baby. Even as a parent. It's hard to put yourself – it's hard for me to put myself in those shoes. But I can certainly see her as having gone through the tragedies that she's gone through, watching and sort of admiring her commitment to her son in the hospital and and sticking with him and hoping that he's going to pull through. I mean what I see is that while there is no supernatural element to this, that that is a realization that her son has become something evil and beyond salvation. Even with the baby, there's a there's enough there that I can kind of understand it, I guess. That's fucked up. I can't believe I said that. I don't know. Rich, chime in. You you have a son. Tell me tell me what your thoughts are on this. Well, I only got the one. <laughs> <laughs> there's no direct parallel then. <laughs> fair, enough. Fair, fair enough. The argument to be made is that and anyone who is going to commit suicide is not in a stable state of mind so to to draw lines where you're asking like why aren't they thinking about the baby it's like well they're they're not rational at that point they're not necessarily thinking things through they're really having a emotional or mental reaction to something i don't know i'm probably describing this in a way that's that's unfair to 
anyone who suffers from depression or suicidal thoughts. God damn you, Rich. That's so insensitive. John, John, I'll give you this. She should have called somebody, right? She should have called somebody and be like, hey, get ready to do myself in. I got a baby. Can you come get it? Just give me 10 minutes and then and then come over. <laughs> yeah. My only frame of reference is my mom, not that we had these kind of morbid conversations, but my own mother, I always had the very clear sense. And again, this was somewhat articulated, was that if one of the two of us died, my sister or I, she would 100% live for the other. If we both died, she would probably kill herself. I mean, you know, that was, that's my impression of it. But if one of us was alive, she would, there's no way she would abandon that, that one, the child that was left behind. Absolutely not. So I guess that's where I'm coming from there. This coincidence that this version of the story plays out is, is, is really absurd in that like, all right, so the little girl, the baby, Angel, Boo, whatever you want to call her. Uh, she's left without a a, cha- a parent, and so then somebody adopts her, who turns out to be Mason Strode. This guy then later, as a realtor, sends her back to. And this is kind of tying back to the original film, uh, where we didn't know that they were related. Sends her back to her brother's house, like which is where Michael locks onto her because she's actually going into the Myers house and, you know, teasing, bantering with Tommy Wallace. And that, that is a coincidence on the par of like something out of star Wars with, Oh, well that's actually, I'm your dad and that's your sister and all this sort of ridiculous shit. But the problem is that it was always ridiculous that Lori was Michael's sister. It was always a dumb idea. And that's why when David Gordon Green was like, we're going to reboot it and just put all that shit aside. I sort of thought, oh, there's a lot of potential there. I don't think he capitalized on it. But that was always a dumb idea. It was a dumb idea in Halloween Part 2. And it was a dumb idea all the way through the series. And it's still a dumb idea. Of all the choices that they seem to be making over and over and over again, at least that adds another level of dimensionality to this story michael is locked up here right why does he want to get out like what is there left to do for him he's killed his oppressors he killed the bully he killed the sister that he desired he killed the you know homophobic stepdad from hell like why does he need to get out and kill people anymore what's the point and this is, the, of all the movies, this is the one that makes the most concerted effort to try to understand Michael, to explore his inner life and his humanity. I'm looking for a compelling, logical descent from human child to soulless killer. That's the big thing this remake sets out to do. Well, if you don't have this kind of connection to his sister, then it's 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 almost like the last movie that we talked about, where, well, Laurie's dead, so why? what's motivating him? He's just killing people who hang out at the house? Sorry, I want to be clear. It's, it's not that it doesn't, from an emotional sort of motivating the character perspective, make sense. Logistically, it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? Like, just in terms of the nuts and bolts of how Laurie Strode winds up 
Oh no! Being yeah. adopted in the same town that it's that, you know, that her parents were killed in. Yeah, that's always been silly. There's never been a way that that makes sense. But once you accept that as the motivating factor and blah blah blah, which is one of the things that's missing from the David Gordon Green film. I mean, to be honest, but it also doesn't have the the logical inconsistency of how Laurie Strode wound up there in the first place. I I gotta say why. Why do you guys feel like it's that far fetched? Like, like as, as, as someone who's actually looked into adoption before, this is a real thing where someone leaves a baby at a church, and the first thing the church does is essentially say, "Hey, does anyone want this baby?" And people say yes, and then they go to the court and they file paperwork, and then the baby is theirs. So it's not preposterous that the baby would be taken away from the home and that the, what did, what does he say? Like a Brad Durf's explanation is like, he took it to the fire department and that the fire department then ended up uh, giving it to him to adopt. It's not that crazy. Like, especially if you are willing to buy that they're in small, small town America in the seventies. She ends up in a family who is representing who are realtors who are selling the same house that she was taken from in this incredibly traumatic incident. And she happens to go back there on the day that Michael is back there and skulking around in the house and then targets her because they're, they're both there. And at least in the first movie, if not in this one, I don't even know in this movie. That's another question. How does he identify? Oh, that's her, you know, like, that's what I'm saying. It's this chain of weird coincidences that even put her back on his radar at all. When is the moment that he identifies that she is his sister? Uh, it's when he smells the mail that she dropped off, apparently. Ah. That's, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's he's, zombie didn't include it, but there's actually a wall with a bunch of newspaper clippings on it, ah! and it has all these pictures of of Lori growing up. That's the one go. thing this movie is is missing from all of the other films is we don't have anyone with a wall of newspaper clippings, and for that I am grateful. And tunnels. I was yes. I was really at some point when she was in the basement, and I was like, why doesn't she just go out through the tunnels? Even in Lori's first scene when she comes down and the and her dad says, ah, oh, you know, such and such grocery store is closing, and she talks about what a pervert he was and what the what the the old grocery store guy used to do to her or whatever, uh, and it was this continuation of this exceptionally sexual talk among families. In this case, it's supposed to be tonally very different, obviously, from the first scene. But I was really struck by the fact that it was like, oh, like everybody's talking about fucking in the morning. Like, is that is that just what families do? It's uh, very weird. It's very weird. But it at least continues on. One of the things that I noticed is that is really the, the content of the conversation when – Lori and Annie and Linda are walking down the street and talking. They're just talking about sex and that that is what Michael overhears. And so in a much more direct way, as opposed to when he's in a car sort of riding by or whatever, that if you're thinking of that, that sexuality is a trigger for him, that here we get this very on the nose thing of this is a bunch of girls 
talking about fucking, and that drives Michael crazy, especially as it regards who he's already identified as his sister. It was something that I was struck by that that we've always talked about the psychosexual aspect and how that that seems to uh, sort of trigger his murderous impulses, certainly in the first film and and less thoughtfully so going forward. It seems very on the nose here, but I thought it worked. I just I'm not really seeing that from the boy, you know, like other than the one scene touching the sister's leg, everything where he's in the facility and, you know, he's showing normal human emotions and he just wants to get out. And unless he's completely bullshitting, we drop the whole sexuality aspect. I mean, he does. Now, this is interesting. This should be pointed out in the theatrical cut. He escapes while he's being transferred by a bunch of cops. But in the unrated cut, there is a woman being raped in the room with him when he escapes. Now that, that does seem like it's tying into your theory there, Vic, in that like sort of the sexuality is always the main catalyst somehow for his actions. If you look at that opening scene, again, we've we've talked about that a lot. That, that what you're doing is painting a picture of what his whole life up to this point has been. And so in that respect, it's a really toxic idea of what sexuality is, if that's what he's been exposed to up to this sort of 10-year-old age. The rape scene, I mean, I again, it's I don't know if, if people listening are, are encountering one version over the other. The rape scene doesn't hold a lot of water for me logistically the script was sort of bending over backwards to just to make michael's escape sort of as fucked up as possible like i didn't buy the motivation for the guys going into his room and that sort of stuff it's absurd you had you had you had ronnie style you had two ronnie style characters where it's just like this is the biggest piece of shit imaginable yeah um to a degree where it was it was almost unbelievable. Well, again, like, why would you choose that to be how he breaks out when you have the opportunity to make it when Loomis gives up on him and says, like, it's kind of silly in that he says, like, you might be my best friend in the world and how, you know, <laughs> fucked up is my life and all of this. But by the way, see ya, you know, like, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm turning my back on you anyway. And so, like, if we wanted to go the psychological route and this sort of relationship route where it, it, the humanity in Michael is also what drives him to kill and that, like, the people letting him down or hurting him or whatever are, are still the wellspring of his motivation. We could have gone that route, but instead, like, we have in the, the cut that we've seen, that I think which is now the, the, the dominant cut, theatrical cut i don't know how widely available it is anymore the idea is that well these two rednecks are raping a woman in front of him with the door open and mocking him in a much the same way that ronnie did and one of them fucks with the mask on top of it so there's like every they're basically poking the bear with a stick until the bear finally rips their face off like it it has nothing to do with loomis or his mother or anything why he escapes at this time or or his sister for that matter it's of course he would escape given this ridiculous situation that he finds himself in agreed and it's not 
Like you're not even poking the bear with the stick. Like you're electrocuting the bear with a <laughs> yeah. cattle prod, uh, <laughs> and and you know yes, and then laying prostrate on the ground and waiting for the bear to eat you. Like it's, that's, it's just the it's like a Rob Zombie scene in the worst iteration of a Rob Zombie scene. Totally. Let's get to Lori and her friends. I have a story about Linda. <laughs> Is this, uh, is this anything like your landlord being uh, in, how, in Friday the 13th Part 5? Because that was mm-hmm. a good story, too. Quite a bit. Quite a bit. My girlfriend in whatever year this was shot, 2006 or so, she was friends. Good friends with uh, Christina Klebe, who plays uh, Linda in this film. My, my girlfriend was not a horror movie fan, but she knew that I was. And she mentioned, oh, my friend is in this Rob Zombie movie that he's making. I'm like, the remake of Halloween? And she's like, yeah, yeah, she's in it. And I, I was like, holy shit, that's awesome. That's super cool. And then she, my girlfriend said, oh, you know, she actually says we can come to the set and watch the watch them filming it's fine and i'm like really we can and she's like yeah let's you want to go and i'm like yeah let's get in the car let's go the way it was described as I, I recall it was they were filming in an abandoned hospital or something and i guess it, it was really the basement scene where she's lying dead for some period of time because it was like oh well i'm going to be lying naked in a pool of blood all day you should come we're on our way uh, we just actually left my apartment and my girlfriend says, so I'm late. And I go, what? And she's like, I'm late. And I say, okay. And she's not happy with my expression or my tone of voice. She kind of flips out. She thought I would be more receptive to this possibility or this news. I don't know why. And suddenly we start, (laughs) we kind of start fighting and arguing and it becomes, we have to go to a a pharmacy and get a pregnancy test right now. And we don't go visit the set of Halloween. She's not pregnant, but the day is still ruined. By the way, I think she ended up like, I found out she was like two or three days late or something. Like, give me a break, but okay. Okay. So we have this whole relationship drama. We do not go see Christina Klebe, um lying naked on the floor of the Myers house or whatever. So I do end up hanging out with her. We go to like sort of somebody's party and uh, I haven't seen the movie yet, of course, but I chat with her and she seems cool and it's like a good time. I stay in the relationship for another year or so. It doesn't end up working out. She's a cool person. I never forgave her though. Cause I, I always thought <laughs> the woman for me, the woman I will marry would have moved heaven and earth to get me on the set of Halloween that day. She never would have like, she could have hated me later, but we would have gone to that set. <laughs> Recently I saw Christina Klebe in another movie and, um, you know, she's she's good. I, I actually like her. I think, Rich, you were going to say something disparaging about her earlier, so we might as well get that out of the way. It's not like we're best friends or anything. 
but <laughs> I wouldn't say it was disparaging. I just felt like she was the least spirited of the actors. Like she, she kind of read the most flat to me mm-hmm. of any of the actors. Well, Linda is the flattest character in the in the trio. And Danielle Harris brings so much baggage, not to mention the fact that she, I mean, she really is an exceptional actress. It's a fucking crime that she's been sort of relegated to screen queen uh, at this point in her career. But plus she gets to have like the, the slasher equivalent of the Eastern promises uh, bathroom <laughs> yeah. naked, naked battle. With Michael Myers, so that's yeah, kind of... but uh, yeah, and and could just confuse the fuck out of all of us you know, <laughs> thirty-five and up men who have to watch that scene. Um, <laughs> I struggled with that scene of them walking down the street because it, he really has like taken the scene that we know and sort of updated it so that the language is a little more sexual and like there's a little more profanity and that and everything sort of feels updated and it should feel more realistic and relatable and connectable able to be connected to than than it does in the the carpenter version but it doesn't and so it's like i understand why he made all the choices that he did in the script and the actors do the best they can with it i love the way that they incorporated the totally into the, you know, they, they were able to sort of work that into the phrasing a bunch of times and stuff. And like, that was as organic as it could have been. Like, that's how you do fucking fan service people, you know, like it's, it Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be Michael Myers cocking his head every 15 minutes. No kidding. Yeah. But it still felt fake. Like it still felt forced in a way that for, for whatever reason that it doesn't, feel as bad in the Carpenter version. I definitely prefer the Carpenter version of that scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, they blow through it. Like, it, they, they speak the lines so fast that you can barely digest them. Like they have the screen tests and auditions and stuff. And so I watched that scene several times because that was the only scene that they put on the, the disc. And I actually thought that the fundamental dialogue wasn't, wasn't terrible, but I just think that there's something empty about it and that you just don't get the real character stuff and the universal, the relatable, it it, it is just kind of absurd and silly. I keep using that word. I have a hard time taking this movie seriously and it just the artifice, like that's the irony of it. I feel like the artifice of this film is weirdly in in my face when the whole aesthetic of Rob Zombie is real, real, real. And that's that's just a, the strange dichotomy going on here. John, we're never going to get Rob Zombie on the podcast if that's your commentary. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, sure I've offended him like 30 times today. That's, what, that's what's holding it. Otherwise, he'd be there. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I agree. And it's part of – I mean, again – like you said, it's everything about this portion. What I'd say is that I feel much more in tune and in, in, in sort of involved in everything leading up to this. This is the point where we get just a truncated version of yep. the Halloween movie. And yeah, it all feels rushed. I didn't give much of a shit about Linda in the Carpenter version, but I, I don't even care. Like I barely noticed like when you know when we cut to the scene where they're getting ready to have sex, and I was like, "Holy shit, we're doing this already!" 
Hey, I've uh, had drinks with her. Don't say bad things about her. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Um, yeah. It, that is that is endemic to the whole issue here is that those girls we met in the first film, like you can't help but sort of recognize them in your sister's friends and somebody in your life. It all feels like, those, okay, yeah, those are those are real people. And we just, it, I'm not going to say it's mannered or phony. It just, it all happens so insubstantially and nobody has a real defined personality other than being like as usual in a Rob Zombie movie. They swear a lot. I just, I, I gotta say, I'm, I'm also having a hard time taking your commentary seriously, knowing that you just have a lot of misdirected rage at this film because you didn't get to go to the set. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of true. Good point. Yeah. Like, yeah. don't take it out on the movie. I blame Rob Zombie yeah. for me not getting to, to come and watch them film. I feel like we can kind of blow through the rest of this movie. Like there's mm-hmm. a couple of exceptional things. I love the fact that Lori's parents die. And I found that that whole scene really effective. And there are some sort of specific things that go, Oh, well, that was, that was sort of good. And that was sort of good. This is just a really truncated rushed version of like, okay, this happens and this happens and then she dies and then she dies and then she dies. And then Lori runs around and then she falls in a pool and, Absolutely. I mean, the one thing before we get to that portion, and I think we can skip to that, is the uh, the Ken Furry trucker, like where he gets the overalls and they have this very brief but extremely physical, violent fight in the stall. I, that's yeah. the scene that I remembered yeah, I'm, the I'm most. So, I'm so I'm so glad that that's where your head's at. It's the best scene in the entire remake portion of the movie. Yeah. Is it? Is, I, I, I honestly can't recall. There's nothing like that in the original no. There's certainly plenty of truck stop for, for some reason. There's a lot of truck stop bathrooms in this <laughs> franchise. That's almost obligatory yeah. in every movie. That's true. Yes. <laughs> but not this specific moment. Also, he can get overalls is really the whole point of the scene. It doesn't even help with his transportation. The hundred miles to Haddonfield. It's a, you have to, you get to introduce this entire character, fall in love and then dispatch him. Also that Michael gets overalls. Yeah. Yeah, Michael doesn't drive in this one. It's true. But the actor is great. Like, oh, he's got yeah. a great look. He gives a good performance. Like, it's, you kind of believe that he's going to give Michael Myers a run for his money. I mean, he's not, he's not getting out of that bathroom. But even the whole, even the dialogue, I can't remember exactly what he says when he's sitting on the toilet. But it's a, it's, it's good. A, a taco supreme talking back at him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that, actually. I mean, yeah. now and then, there are some great lines in, in, in the Rob Zombie films, and I think that's one of the the, the, the great ones. <laughs> it just works. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the that's uh, Peter from Dawn of the Dead, and I love seeing yes, him. Yes, yes, I knew I knew him. Damn yep. It. Yes. He, he's a guy that brightens every scene that he's in, and like it's just such a colorful character like this is rob zombie at his best is is this kind of sequence where this guy like he talks a big game and he is a badass but um he doesn't know what he's getting into and obviously it goes south for him in a hurry but like for a minute you're like yeah i want to see this guy go toe-to-toe with michael it's creepy also that michael like 
raps on the door of the stall. Like that's something he doesn't usually do. So it even kind of puts a little, the smallest uh, spin on Michael's usual MO in that like he's weirdly like knocking on a door to get the guy's attention rather than, you know, stealthily killing him in some way. There is a dialogue payoff when he finally stands up and opens the door and like announces himself like I'm Big Joe Grizzly. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And meanwhile, like he sees the guy's feet on the other side of the stall. He knows he even sees the mask and none of it scares him. None of it scares him. Mike Michael's got the fucking slippers on. Yeah. Like, that's a wonderful touch. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a it's a great scene. I agree. I'll also say that the the beating against the the bathroom wall in that is feels especially brutal yes um like it's a long shot that that just kind of keeps going apparently um, there were no stunt doubles involved in this like it feels very visceral and yeah i mean the whole sh- the camera is shaking but you still get a visceral it's, it's funny i was actually gonna point that out as well that i actually felt like that was i i mean i, I guess it depends on your perspective it felt a little bit like a cheap trick to me that like Every time there was an incident of violence, they were shaking the camera like violently, like it was noticeable that it, when it would happen. And I don't know if that's just to lend frenetic energy to the to the scene or cover up the the stunt or, or what, but uh, it felt I felt like it drew attention to itself. Well, as is customary uh, on this podcast, we kind of uh, run out of steam in the last uh, half an hour of the movie. <laughs> so let's uh, let's sort of speed through uh, the extended remake portion of the film. I think you guys touched on earlier the D. Wallace kill. Any specific thoughts about that that you haven't already shared when Michael attacks the Strode house? Just that I think it's a it's a positive deviation from the original film. It was something that surprised me when I first watched it, and it actually still surprised me a little bit, even though I remembered it uh, in the remake. It's really fucked up. <laughs> it's a really yeah. fucked up scene, and it's not. I don't know. I feel like we don't see violence visited upon the parents in almost any of these movies. Uh, the parents are almost always these sort of these sort of weird absent figures and that's one of the things we get in this is a much stronger relationship between Lori and her uh and and her parents i love this a moment right before i think it's right before she leaves to go babysit tommy when they're they're sitting on the stoop and and Lori says something and like her mom tickles her or something and it's it's just it was just like such an honest like a great honest moment that pays off because you're like, fuck, no, she's, what is Michael Myers doing to her? All that stuff sort of paid off in that scene. It made it emotionally resonant in a way that very few deaths in a horror film are. And especially the, again, especially the the parents. Yeah, they have a chemistry for sure. And it happens so quickly after that scene that you don't really have time to forget uh, her parents. It definitely packs a, a punch if this movie is trying to change it up and, and do stuff that will keep you guessing. That's definitely one of them. Like, oh, well, the Strodes get murdered in this one. So that it's not totally a shot for shot remake. You know, it's not totally predictable. Leading up to the to the murder of the parents, I remember noting how many shots there are in the daylight where Michael Myers is just like wandering the streets. 
Like he's 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 constantly walking behind Laurie. There's all these shots that actually on the second viewing, I, I noticed them. Um, they kind of went past me the first time. It's like the when she goes up and has the conversation, she's like reassembling the skeleton with the mom in the front yard, where it's like Michael is just standing in the middle of the street behind them in broad daylight, just staring at them. One of the mirrorings of the first film is sort of like Michael in the back of shots in these neighborhoods and stuff. And I think this movie, of of the things that they directly lifted or echoed, that was one of the more effective parts was when you just kind of have him stalking. It's often quite subtle like that. That is good. And one of the other things, I'm just watching it right now, but the dialogue where Clint Howard and Udo Kier are arguing with Loomis, with uh, Malcolm McDowell about letting him go. Like, I think that some of these things that they're saying are things that had crossed my mind and I appreciate being vocalized. Like, you know, you guys, all you had to do was be zookeepers, you know, just keep him in his cage until he died of old age. Um, That's the kind of thought that I had um, all along was, it was that simple. Say what you want. Like not all of Rob Zombie's dialogue is fantastic, but there are some sharp lines throughout this film. (laughs) But when, but when paired with the acting prowess of Udo Kier, <laughs> <laughs> it really sings. He's such a character, Udo Kier. He is mad that trusts in the tameness of a wolf is what, uh, <laughs> what we leave it with. <laughs> Michael also kills Paul in this movie. He did not kill Paul and the Annie's boyfriend in the original. We never uh, saw Paul. Nope, we never saw Paul. Bob is dispatched similarly to the first film. Uh, we have in this one, which is kind of vague and I didn't entirely understand even seeing the movie the second time, was that I guess the kids party in the Myers house and that's where Linda and Bob have sex. So it's like almost kind of a coincidence again that Michael's house is where the teens are convening and so it's it's kind of almost natural or inevitable that he would knock them off because they come right to him i gotta be honest i didn't understand the geography in this as especially sort of the everything seems so much clearer in the carpenter original that you had you understood the relationship between where Lindsay lived and where tommy lived did the drunk rednecks live in like the same neighborhood as the Strodes? Because they all seem like they're walking distance from each other. Yes. Yes. It seems like it. Yeah. It's a dizzying geography of houses. There's the two houses they babysit in. Then there's the Strode house. Then there's the Myers house. And they go between like four or five different houses all on foot in in the third act of this film, back and forth. And the police are always going to the wrong house and Loomis. And I mean, it's almost comical, kind of the geography of this as it plays out. And it's very confusing. It's also Um, funny because apparently the the exteriors were shot in the same neighborhood as the mm -hmm. original. And you can kind of tell it's all uh, South Pasadena. And the wall that the three girls are walking by in the in the sort of analogous scene here it looks a lot like the one in the first movie and you know it very well could be because they they literally shot in the same neighborhood 
we, we need to talk briefly about this Michael, obviously. What are your guys' thoughts of how he stacks up to other Michaels? Anything particularly interesting or scary about him or not effective versus others? I think he's great. Like, I think Tyler Maine has a real physical presence. Uh, I love the mask. I find it, it, it was sort of initially distracting, but I think it works that he sort of grunts throughout the movie, like as he's, as he's sort of murdering people or dragging people away or whatever, it makes him feel human in a way. And again, that's the, the, again, that's sort of the zombie aesthetic is like the, the realism of it. So he's a person that, that can believably smash through a door or, you know, drag somebody away, uh, you know, against their will and the noises that he makes and stuff. I, I, I found it, convincing and frequently frightening he seemed sad there was a sadness to him and and maybe it is the fact that you had the prequel that led up to it but i I thought there was something to that that you were at least picturing even though he was wearing the mask you were picturing the little boy when you were watching it as like he had sort of grown to become this and so I, i i agree i thought the mask the physical presence he's certainly huge when he stands up in the the mental asylum the first time um whether it's his actual size or the the way that they shot it, like he is seems just absolutely massive in a way that's imposing. So it felt both effective and, and sort of empathetic. He's definitely imposing. I mean, it, it is somewhat far-fetched that this little boy would turn into this six eight behemoth. There's no evidence that he works out or he eats well or any anything. It's just kind of like, oh well, yeah, that's that's what that little boy turned into. Uh, But nonetheless, it's quite the, he cuts quite the figure. Uh, I do think he's much, much more menacing than the -the run-of-the-mill Michael Myers that we saw in the middle of the series, where often, I think we've discussed on this podcast, like how kind of ludicrous the shoulder pads might be, or, you know, lumpy or strange the physique might be, or, you know, goofy the mask is. That is not the case. I will also say that the mask in this movie, every time that we watch a Halloween movie since the David Gordon Green movie, I isolate what that movie had to give, what they took shamelessly or not for the new one. And in this movie, it's the mask because that weathered mask um, that this Michael Myers has is very, very similar to the one that they use in the uh, 2018 version. I think he's good. I mean, I think he's definitely right up there with one of the better Michael Myers. Very expressive, brings a lot with the eyes and the persona. I was so intrigued by the last Michael Myers in a way in that like, oh, well, he's Machiavellian and look at that and he's one step ahead and I really could latch on to that. I never totally know what this Michael Myers is all about because of everything that I've already said. Is he motivated just to kill everyone for no reason? Is he all just faking it when he tries to be human? Or is he trying to to, to regain some human connection that he's lost and, and, and isn't really even fully aware when he commits these crimes? And there's some, you know, almost a duality to him. Who knows? I just don't think, I wish they would have committed to something enough to give us a clearer picture but uh, they don't. The third act, uh, lots of running around, lots of murdering people. Lori inevitably goes through sort of her her final girl transformation and becomes more resilient and tough and 
resourceful. But, you know, I don't think she really has any defining moment where I'm like, oh, that was really clever. Like, that was a great, she outwitted Michael in some way. What do you guys think about her as a uh, heroine in, in Act 3 of this film? Uh, I watched the last of 15 minutes of this on my phone in my car while I was driving. And because it's so uh, darkly lit and because my attention was, was somewhat distracted, all I heard was, was Lori screaming and then wood smashing and then more wood smashing and then Lori screaming and then they fell off the balcony. So I didn't see her do anything that, that was particularly impressive. And I didn't see anything really before that. It's one of those things where you could feel the, all right, she's got to, so she's going to run to Tommy's house and bang on the door. And then Tommy's going to let her in somehow. All of that just played less suspensefully than it did uh, with Jamie Lee Curtis. So it wasn't quite the run of like, you know, she stabs him and then drops the knife and runs away. And then she stabs him with the coat hanger and then runs away. And it didn't have quite the sense of like her just screwing up over and over again. Yeah. She also doesn't, she doesn't stand out compared to uh, any of the, 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 the major final girls from Friday the 13th, for instance. Honestly, I feel like one of the most striking things for me. And, and initially I think actually my wife brought this to my attention was like, she was talking about how, when uh, she's still shepherding the kids and trying to protect them from Michael, that there's a lot of like getting, like telling them to get into the bathtub while she stands in front of it. That makes her seem very like motherly. Like she actually seems very like, um, like protecting of them. And even when she finds is uh, it's Annie, right? Annie was Danielle Harris. Yes. Yes. When she finds Annie, there's something about the the language that she keeps using. She keeps calling her like honey and baby. And she keeps saying like, like, oh, oh, baby, oh, baby, oh, baby. She seems like a very empathetic character more than a the, the tough survivor who has to make that like that turn. She certainly makes the turn at the very end when she when she kills him. But I don't know. The motherly characteristics like stood out to me more than anything else. I think that's definitely in the original, too. Uh where I think we even commented that when we on that when we did the podcast was that she boyfriend or not she's already got a motherly impulse and a responsibility you see that here too um but yeah there's really a lack of wins or beats that show her kind of cleverness or in in any way kind of uh oh she survives you know out of merit in some way it, it seems more that she's just doing the very bare minimum to avoid being killed and benefiting, by the way, like in the scene that Nick probably couldn't make out on his uh, phone or, or whatever. The scene where Michael is smashing the ceiling with a, uh, a two by four or something and she's up in the attic and it, it's kind of popping up around her and somehow she's meanwhile making a lot of loud, pathetic sounds he can't quite get he can't quite hit her with this thing and it's just everywhere he swings it he's destroying the entire ceiling above him but it never it, it can't quite connect with her uh it, it it's sort of a silly non effective uh sequence for me because again i want to see a heroine you know if she's surviving it should be out of being truly elusive or, you know, doing it the smart way. 
and she's a blubbering mess up there and he just somehow is ineptly uh, going after her sort of like she just has the pixie dust of being the heroine it makes a, a monotonous scene even more monotonous when we not only realize narratively that of course the protagonist is not in any real danger here but the the scene is beating us over the head with the fact that suddenly our antagonist is inept and the force field of being the lead is, is going to inexorably protect our, our, our lead, no matter what she does. And it it just feels like a waste of time. Well, not to mention the fact that the, the whole ending essentially happens twice. Yes. Yes. You, you have the entire struggle that happens through the house and then Loomis comes and, rescues her puts her in the car and then they have their little fake out where she asks if he's the he's the boogeyman and and loomis says as a matter of fact i think it was and then michael rips her out of the car and then we sort of start all over again (laughs) right right that's so (laughs) dumb it's it's another like it's it's something like it's like a it's another 15 minute sequence of her running around the house and at least at least this is absolutely true. When I was in my car, so I had started it as she was getting out of the house and like right before she falls into the pool. And then all of a sudden, like she's screaming again and locked up. And I, I like tapped the phone and looked at the, <laughs> the runtime. And I was like, did it jump back to where I was before? So, no, you're absolutely right. It's totally a replay of that. Just because they didn't feel like they had enough ending, I guess. And, because, yeah, well, the original cut was supposed to be then the police just execute him uh, long before. They don't have the, the fake out there, you know. The police show up and they shoot him full of holes and we have sort of Loomis sadly looking down at his body and that's the end of the movie instead of this whole coda with the, the tacked on ending. Well, in some ways I like, the, the, and I'll get to this, there's something that I very much like about what they did. But it certainly does feel like you could have taken some of that time because you're looking at a two-hour horror film. It's an extraordinarily long film. Now, when you – given the structure, I understand why they did it that way. You could have taken some of that second ending and given it to Linda and Annie, given us some of those long takes and built up some suspense. I mean some of the stuff that makes this this sort of second half of the movie feels so truncated. It would have been nice to put some padding elsewhere instead of on the end when it's just Laurie running around. I will say that the actual ending, I mean, of her with the gun on him and when he finally grabs her hand and she pulls the trigger and then just screaming and like black screen, there are a number of parallels with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Mm -hmm. but that one is right up there with it. That, like, we are not going to give you any kind of denouement so that you can feel good about what happened. This is just awful. And it, and the only thing you can say about Laurie Strode is she survived. I find that really effective as an ending. It's bleak. Yeah, I agree. I, I liked it. But do, do you feel like the uh, cutting to the baby picture or the, the home video after at the end undercuts that? No, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I actually thought that was a brilliant way to go out. I mean, this a Rob Zombie in like eight millimeter, 16 millimeter film like that. Just for some reason that just clicks, but no, it puts, it puts everything you've seen in this kind of context. I mean, that's really what he's doing in the whole movie is drawing a juxtaposition between Michael Myers at 10 and Laurie Strode as an infant. 
and the people that they become. So no, I actually, I found all of that really effective. Yeah. That does kind of tie it all up and connects the, you know, these very disparate pieces of story together. I was very aware of the Texas Chainsaw parallel, but it's, uh, I mean, look, sure. Her performance is very convincing and you can see why all of this would lead her to that moment of extremity compared to the ending of the last movie where (laughs) just it's become this, this joke of trying to trying to kill Michael Myers, the futility of that task. I think we did a really good job of resetting this whole equation and grounding it again in, in some scintilla of persuasive reality. And it, it's good, and, and it does connect to the beginning. My biggest like final thought on the movie is it's effective, it's, it's gritty, it's often disturbing, it doesn't pull any punches. It's, it's what I, I look for in a horror movie for the most part. But I guess just having seen all of these movies, like if I had a wish list of what you're going to do with a remake, this isn't it, you know, like this was not, I don't feel like it's a satisfying reimagining. Zombie never quite put his finger on, okay, this is the take. I think it's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. But, you know, at the same time, I think compared to the David Gordon Green one, it does have a vision because it's not a greatest hits tape. It, it really is exploring something. I just don't think he found what he set out to, which is the psychological truth of Michael Myers. I actually think that it's a well-directed film. And I think that there is a certain singularity of vision in the way that it's directed and again, the way that the, the, the cast is directed and like delivers it and, and gets the information to us. I just don't think it's well-written at the end of the it's day. Not... That's the biggest thing, right? It's the script. Yeah. If the measuring stick that we're using for this film is my ideal version of Halloween or my ideal version of a remake of Halloween, I guess it's definitely lands below that. But part of the problem is, even more so than Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Amityville Horror, Halloween is one of the all-time great films, like, just kind of period. Like, it's a, it's, a, it's a film that we are still watching and being terrified by, you know, almost, what, 40 years later? The idea of trying to tackle that in any fashion is really, really hard to get your head around. And so does it fall short, certainly, of the original? Yes. Does it fall short of kind of the best possible version of it? Yes. But working within the constraints of everything else, and if you compare it against the other remakes that it was happening, I mean, the, the, the time in which it was being made is a time in which they were remaking lots of horror films. Uh, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre is really what kicked it off. And so if you measure it against all of those other remakes that were happening, I think it's head and shoulders above them. And that's nothing to sneeze at. Uh, it's it's really and, – and Rob Zombie is the difference. That's very fair. I mean if, if I was going to say as much as I can criticize 
well, where's the vision in that, like, it didn't, he didn't map out, like, this is what I really think Michael is all about. Compared to those movies, this is absolutely a vision executed because it is a filmmaker's statement. It is, it has, it has his style. It has his voice and it, it it's weird enough and quirky enough and individualistic enough that when you compare it to like the random platinum dunes remake, and that's why I liked it so much at the time was because it absolutely stands out as much more idiosyncratic and bold in its, um, its approach. So yeah, I can both kind of remember what it was like to love this movie and both. I understand at the same time, I understand why after having done this podcast and studied these films so closely, I can understand why I, I, I kind of shrug at, at, at so much of it now. It's kind of, it's just one of the weird after effects of, taking on something that has been done so many times. And it's a real challenge as a filmmaker to, to stake out new territory in that realm. That said, I would love to see, this is, this is my pitch for a new Halloween movie is I want to see a movie that's just about the parents. All we've talked about when we do this podcast is how the, the parents are all swingers and they're just drunk all the time. And somebody crashed into and killed Ben Tramer. <laughs> like there's a, there's a whole dark sick world going on with the parents in Haddonfield. And, and I, for one, I'm curious about that. So well, they made that movie. It was, it was Angley's the ice storm. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that movie, by the and way. Elijah and Elijah Wood grew up to be. Michael Myers. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, this has been fantastic. I just want to say thanks again for having me on. Uh, it's fun to be a part of it. It is. <laughs> I, I can't tell if it's if it's joining the podcast at this point. I just missed it before, but I do feel like there is this late franchise sort of despondency <laughs> as you as you as you reach the later chapters of it. So it's interesting to enter at this point while it's still fun and exciting for me to to get in and analyze it. We needed some so, new blood. It was a very uh, ambivalent experience watching this movie. Like, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad to be had in this movie, and somehow it doesn't seem to quite balance out at, at the end. Without even watching the entire series, I'm, I'm left feeling a little bit numb from it. So I see where you guys are coming from. Uh, <laughs> and thanks thanks for inviting me to that. Like uh, Friday the 13th Part 7, we needed some new blood. Huh? Uh, ah, see what right. you did I'm there. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to all of our listeners. I'm, I'm just sorry. I would only point out just as a, as a final thought, because, Rich, I, I pretty much echo most of what you said there. And also just want to point out that whatever the franchise fatigue we're feeling after doing this for eight months, we went through in... 48 hours. I really was just in a weird delirious state for like days after we watched all the Halloween movies. There was one small moment that I really loved when Annie, so Annie escapes out the front door and she sort of screams for help and Michael grabs her and pulls her back in the house and slams the door closed. Zombie hangs on that door for a couple of seconds of just, quiet and like it's a kind of like just if you were someone in the neighborhood you totally might not have noticed that but it really reminded me of that first kill in texas chainsaw massacre when he 
mm-hmm. kills the guy, drags him inside, and then slams the door closed, and then it's just quiet. That juxtaposition of uh, sort of violence and silence uh, that it, it was just, I was like, oh shit, like, yes, this guy is a real director. Even if he's borrowing it from Texas Chainsaw, it's still a real moment and it's really effective. Those are the little things in this that I, again, I think set it apart from Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th or My Bloody Valentine or fill in the blank with the sort of shitty horror remake of this of this stretch. Your 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 positive remark inspires me. I just want to throw out one positive moment that I had from it that I meant to mention earlier is when Michael Myers is the final moment of him as a child in the mental hospital. He kills the nurse and they go into a slow-mo, you know, no dialogue scene of of a uh, Loomis and Sherry Moon rushing in. And there's a moment where Michael screams at his mother and she reacts by backing off and her eyes go wide. And you get the sense of it's like she's seeing him for the first time as he truly is. And I I bought that. And um, there's been a lot of talk about the transition, you know, of, of him from the child version to the adult version um, and I, I felt like I, I caught a glimpse of like that real psychological development. I appreciate it. I, I do feel like there was thought behind this movie. Um, and that, that's, I think, what sets it apart the way you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. I feel like I'm doing it a disservice in the sense that there are many things like that that I could highlight and deserve unpacking the way we often do um, on the show. And my only excuse for that is that I'm inspired when I feel like it might be a batshit crazy vision, but that, 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 that a movie is doing something and I get it. And I feel like this movie is doing a lot of interesting things, but I didn't get it. And that's, that's kind of uh, the issue, but you guys definitely highlighted that these are way better than 90% of slasher movies. Almost uniformly, there's a class and a sophistication and a depth just to like the, the connotations of the Halloween movie. They, they, they feel an obligation to go deeper into character than 90% of, of other films that revolve around a psycho and a mass killing people, you know? So I, I definitely have appreciated that throughout the, the, all of them. And this movie is, is no different. And in, in, in many ways, it's one of the most ambitious of them all. So I don't want to be too negative. It's, it's interesting. And we honestly, we could do another whole podcast and talk about things that we didn't touch on that are, are worthy of note or interesting. And maybe I hope that we'll, we'll, we'll delve deeper into the, into the next movie. And some of those ideas will come up in uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween too. Could have used sixty percent more Buster Rhymes. So. <laughs> oh yeah, Buster Rhymes is always welcome, and uh, hopefully <laughs> the, the invitation stands. That's right. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will be back soon. Adios. Bye. Good night. Bye.